BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. The Ben Jarofsky Show <laughs> for your Thursday, November 21st. This moments away. But before we get into this, we need to thank the following unions for jumping on board and sponsoring this program. First up, it's the International Association of Machinists and Aerospace, not Aerosmith Workers, Local 126 and District 8, the International Union of Operating Engineers, Local 150, and the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, Local 9. A giant thank you to those unions for jumping on board and sponsoring our program. And of course, today's Ben Jarofsky Show is brought to you by our good friends at the Chicago Federation of Labor. I love you, baby. Boop, 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 boop. Boo. The Ben Jarofsky Show starts now. <laughs> yeah. It is Thursday, November 21st, and live from the Chicago Sun-Times, Chicago Reader Studio on Racine Avenue, this is The Ben Jarofsky Show. Today on the program, In These Times writer Miles Camflassen is back. And Ben will be taking the deep dive with union man and pension guru Jeff Johnson. And it's the return of our dear friends Latisa Wallace and Samina Mustafa talking all things last night's debate. And now your host, who I'm sure will be talking all things last night's debate <laughs> yes, as well. Yes, will. Chicago Reader columnist Ben Jarofsky. Hello, everybody. Ben Jarofsky here calling this Tulsi Thursday. And here's why. Ooh, yeah. Well, I just, Tulsi Thursday because, you know, the two T's, D, that's called alliteration. You learn that in radio school. Oh. But I'm utterly obsessed with last night's debate. Uh, you know, once again, I watched the debate on my little cell phone because I don't have cable TV. I actually don't have any TV of any kind. That's a whole other story. But I watched it on my little cell phone and I found it fascinating. Uh, and now people make fun of me to a degree, D, because I'm so obsessed with the Democratic debates. The standard line of most people I know is, oh, my God, they're so boring. Or can't we just wake me up when we have fewer candidates? It's like a, a standard refrain. And I kind of like this, this debate format. I, I'm going to have a con confession here, D. Uh, and <laughs> confessional music. Yes, it's true. This is like the early days of the Final Four tournament when there's 64 teams. And I just, I don't know, I've sort of get off on all the different uh, candidates. Uh, in the race. And part of the reason I do is that I've been so unconventional my entire career as a journalist, basically on the out looking in, uh, working for an alternative newspaper, uh, The Reader, my beloved reader, uh, since uh, the 80s, been writing for The Reader since the 80s. So I'm used to pretty much being like a, a a minority voice, if you will, uh, in a chorus, a much larger chorus. And we're really trying to be heard. And it's very difficult to be heard because, you know, as a writer for an alternative newspaper, you don't have the reach of the conventional writers for the downtown dailies. You don't have the reach of the conventional journalists from the mainstream news outlets. So, you know, you just you have just a, a uh, you're, you're really reaching a smaller group of people and you're hoping that they'll spread the word and then sooner or later more people will hear what you have to say. It's That's just the life of an alternative uh, newspaper journalist, okay? So I'm used to, I'm not crying here, not complaining, I'm just saying that's the way it goes. So when I look at the debates, 
the uh, first rounds of the Democratic debates and I see there's 10 candidates on stage, that in part means that voices that don't usually get heard in the Democratic Party, that don't usually get heard by the mainstream, uh, the mainstream leaders of the Democratic Party either don't want you to hear or don't want to hear themselves, they're getting an opportunity. Now, it's a limited opportunity uh, because generally they're the, they get the least amount of time in these debates. Actually, I mean, because once again, there's only the debates two hours. Some people say it's too long as it is. And you have 10 people on stage. So it's a limited amount of time. And yet I feel they use it to their best advantage. I'm going to talk about two from last night. I already alluded to one Tulsi, but let me talk about uh, Andrew Yang uh, for a moment. I'm really impressed with Andrew Yang. And I'll tell you why I'm impressed with him uh, as his background is in corporate law and an entrepreneur. And he's articulating some thoughts about artificial intelligence. He keeps calling it AI. Really what he's talking about is how Alan Iverson uh no but very good for knowing who Alan Iverson is <laughs> Alan Iverson of course the sensational uh, guard for the Philadelphia 76ers uh back in the early O's when Dennis was uh, first becoming aware of professional basketball uh it, no, AI in this case, artificial intelligence really talking about how our economy is becoming more and more t- uh technological technology is replacing workers and so we're seeing this you know as uh, it's like a devaluation of labor uh and so so that will force more people out of the workforce uh it will lower uh, wages uh and then of course if you're out of work if you're getting lower wages this 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 function of life kicks in it's a lot harder to deal with realities of life uh when you're poor when you're broke. And so he's going to talk about rising use, drug uses, drug rates, uh, alcoholism, divorce, breakdown of families. So he's like futuristic. He, he tries to stay away from that label of futuristic because there's something weird about it. Americans can't deal. Oh, it's like a science fiction movie or something. H.G. Wells, I can't deal with it. It's brain overload. Don't talk to me about the future. I just want to know about right now. Uh, but I think that's a, just a necessary jolt of reality. This is where we're heading, folks. Everybody's like, oh, we love Amazon. Remember this, Dave? Remember last year? We're, we're going to throw millions, billions of our dollars at Amazon. To, please come to Chicago, Amazon. Well, I got news for you guys right now. Amazon, and this is some of the things that Andrew Yang talks about, is trying to devise technology that will put a lot of people out of work. The number of jobs that they will actually create is far less, I believe, than the jobs that will be lost because of the technology. And Andrew Yang shares that view. And one of his ideas is to deal with this by giving everybody a thousand dollars a month, uh, universal uh, benefit, a universal basic income of a thousand dollars a month, uh, which, you know, that blows everybody. What? It's going to give away money? A thousand dollars? I don't get it. That's just too weird for me to even understand and relate. Uh, I kind of like, you know. Hey, it's a direct kickback. We're kicking the money in. We're getting the money back. I'm thinking about it, D. I'm getting more warmed up to it. And the thing I like about it is the thing that so many people criticize about it, and that it's universal. Everybody will get it. Even the richest of the rich will get it. Uh, the uh, the people people who run Amazon will get it, for instance. And so it's funny. People criticize him. Oh, well, why should Jeff Bezos get $1,000 a month if he's the richest man in the world? Shame, shame on Andrew Yang for uh, recommending that. 
these are some of the same people who say, let's give Jeff Bezos over $2 billion to build some headquarters in Chicago. So somehow or other, if he's getting something that we're all getting, $1,000 a month, that's bad. But if he gets something that only he gets, which is far greater, $2 billion, that's good. And that's like that's the conventional wisdom of, of America right now and the Democratic Party. And I respect and, Andrew Yang for defying it. Now we get to Tulsi Gabbard. I'm probably going to get kicked out of so many of my lefty friends' parties for saying what I'm about to say. And Samita Mustafab will be here early, uh, later in the show. She's been very critical on the show of Tulsi Gabbard, and well, she should be uh, on issues of foreign relations. But when I hear Tulsi Gabbard talk uh, uh, on the stage, uh, her experiences as, as a serviceman, a servicewoman who served in Iraq, and she talks about uh, regime change wars. I hear the voice of lefties in the Democratic Party or in the fringes of the Democratic Party that I've been interviewing and covering for years, going back to the 80s. And by and large, back in the early 80s, these were relatively young uh, veterans of the Vietnam War who uh, comb- who uh, organized Vietnam, what was it, Vietnam veterans against war. Uh, and they were like peace activists and they were using their experiences uh, on the battlefield as a motivation uh, to preach for a, a new kind of foreign policy. And they had analyzed the people and the ideologies that drove the government to send them the war in the first place. And they decided that another generation would not have to pay the price that they paid for some of these misguided uh, policies and policymakers. And I respected them in the 80s. I respect that voice. I think that voice should be a part of the Democratic Party. There was a brief moment when John Kerry, uh, who was himself uh, one a vet of this sort, uh, tried to introduce those ideas and voices into the Democratic Party. That was in 2004. And if you recall, there was an immediate uprising from the right that was trying to denigrate him for that. And that's some of the same right wing voices that are now backing Donald Trump. So I just think it's kind of ironic. Donald Trump is trying to play it two ways with this issue. On one hand, every now and then he signals that we should not send soldiers uh, to Middle Eastern countries to fight for uh, against regime change. And on the other hand, he's taking advantage of the same forces and factors that were used to destroy John Kerry's 2004 uh, Democratic uh, uh, 2004 presidential run. So what I'm saying is that Tulsi Gabbard, whether you like her or not, uh, represents a view, a view on foreign policy, a view on intervention, a view on how much money we spend on the military, a view on how we discard our vets once they come back from these wars. She represents a view that is very much an important part, in my humble opinion, of what the Democratic Party should be about. So, folks, here's what I'm saying. I know some of these fringe candidates, in your mind, they clutter the stage. I know a lot of you want to hear what the mainstream candidates have to say. But as a guy who has labored in the fields of alternative journalism for all these years, who's been the part of the little chorus trying to be heard above the larger chorus, I welcome their voices. We got a great show today. <laughs> yeah, Dr. D's fired up, man. Uh, Miles Kamflasson will be in, in here in these times, speaking of alternative voices uh, in the news media. Jeff Johnson, 
Mr. Pension Man. He'll be in here. We'll be talking uh, local politics with Jeff Johnson and then Samina Mustafa and Latisa Wallace. In my humble opinion, D, the best tag team combination on where the Democratic Party is going and where it should go. Right there, Samina Mustafa and Latisa Wallace. They were correct. Thank you. Uh, Robert Mueller agrees with me as well. Uh, so they'll be here. We're breaking down the uh, Democratic uh, debate. We'll probably talk a little impeachment. Oh, so much to talk about with Samina and Latisa. Can't wait. But before we do any of that, the young man from Alton, the star stud, the man they call. <laughs> I just, I don't know. I just thought a star stud. The man they call a doctor. Oh, yeah. Dr. D with the news. Everybody, how's it going? Live stream chat room. Where are you at? Uh, did you watch last night's debate? If you did, weigh in with your thoughts. Tell us what you think. One word and why. I don't know. <laughs> we only got left. Oh, left wing Limbaugh's back, by the way. He hasn't been here in a while. He says, after a few months off due to class during showtime, my teacher is canceled and I'm back. <laughs> okay. Welcome back, Cotter. Absolutely. All right, let's find out what's happening in Chicago and or Illinois this afternoon. No public events scheduled for our Governor J.B. Pritzker today, but he did make headlines on Wednesday. This story was developing as we were doing the show. Ben, remember uh, when I mentioned that Pritzker was making a, a quote, capital announcement at Chicago State University? Remember yeah, that? I remember that. I remember when I uh, guessed that it would be him announcing that Springfield will cut that casino deal with Chicago? Remember that? Yeah, I remember that. And that wasn't it. I was wrong. Oh, okay. Governor Pritzker. Well, you tried. I know. Governor Pritzker spoke on all of this damn dirty corruption happening in the state of Illinois, and mainly one person, former state rep Louis Arroyo. Yes, it's an Arroyo Gate update. <laughs> I can't ben, have too much of them. Ben loves these things. Remember Arroyo Gate, guys? All right. It's the time when the state rep Louis Arroyo bribed a wired Illinois senator with a $2,500 a month payoff. Not good, Mr. Arroyo. <laughs> Not good. He has since resigned from his state rep gig. Well, he was being a stubborn boy about all this with his 36th Ward Committeeman seat. And what a rascal. Arroyo used that seat to be able to name his replacement. Governor Pritzker and Democrats alike have said, dude, you're crazy. You can't do that. But he did it anyway. And here we are. Ben, before we move on, there's a lot going on with this story. Please walk us through this. Help us out here. Tell us what we need to know about the 36th Ward and, more importantly, this sudden state rep calamity. All right. Let's. Uh, the real issue here is process. Before we get to that, 36th Ward is Ward on the northwest side of Chicago. Louis Arroyo is the committeeman of the 36th Ward. Uh, he's the state rep from the third uh, legislature, was the state rep from the third legislative district. All right. Now, the way it works uh, in the in the state of Illinois, in the city of Chicago, which is part of the state of Illinois, if there's a vacancy for state rep, the ward committeemen from the who whose wards correspond with that district get to choose a successor. They get to fill the vacancy. So when uh, Louis Arroyo stepped down from state rep after getting caught uh, on tape bribing uh, an unnamed state senator, uh, uh, he stepped down. He, they, had, they had to convene a meeting of the ward committeeman to come up with a replacement. He's still a ward committeeman for the 36th ward, so <laughs> he gets to, uh, a role in naming his replacement. Everyone's outraged. That cannot be allowed to happen. My That's oh an In fact, we were here. I love pointing this out uh, with Jacob Kaplan, a.k.a. JK. A.k.a. Uh, what's his title? Uh, the know-it-all. Well, from, oh, executive. 
Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> he's a political know-it-all, but he's the executive director of the Cook County Party, uh, Cook County Democratic Party. Thank you, Dee, for reminding me to. Uh, and that story was just breaking. They were just learning about it as our show came to a conclusion. And, and Jacob, I have this vision of Jacob getting the phone call from uh, Tony Preckwinkle, running out the door. I got to deal with this. Uh, I Mm, too bad that didn't break while he was on the show. But anyway, um, so there's a vacancy in the state rep seat. The the ward committee may get together to fill the vacancy. Propriety would say, Louis Arroyo, come on, shame, shame on you. You've stepped down because you're in trouble. You should not take a role in uh, naming a replacement. That just mucks up the situation, uh, Take makes Democrats look bad. Uh, ne- negatory. He decided he was going to participate anyway. He tag team with another committeeman named Ariel Robroyos, who's the alderman of the 30th Ward, and they had to together enough weighted votes to name the replacement and they rena- uh, named a woman named Eva Dina Delgado who I do not know D uh, but she's a, uh, a, f- a chief of staff at People's Gas she's an executive at People's Gas and she claims that she will be independent and she will be clean and she'll be a great state rep but uh, everybody's saying no no this is not right a a, a, a disgraced state rep who steps down because up to, he's up to his eyeballs in corruption should not get to name his replacement. Even House Speaker Madigan wrote a letter about it, right? Yes. Now, this is where it gets really. We're going to. Can we take the deep dive? In get the in there, buddy. We're going to take the deep dive. Here we go. <laughs> All right. So Michael Madigan, who's up to his eyeballs and his own problems uh, with the federal investigators swirling and swarming around him. And I don't it's not quite clear exactly what they're swirling and swarming and looking into. My hunch is it has something to do with Commonwealth Edison and Commonwealth Edison hiring operatives for Michael Madigan's political machine into do nothing jobs that enable that give them the the money they need to spend most of their life knocking on doors on behalf of the Madigan machine. That's just my guess. Okay. I don't know. I'm not privy to the inner workings of the, uh, the federal agencies that are investigating uh, Madigan and Democrats. But anyway, Madigan's up to his eyeballs and his own controversies. So suddenly he has to look as pure as the, the first snow when it falls, D. You know how, how pristine it is and lovely and innocent. And that's Mike Madigan is suddenly, you know, at age 70 something, haven't been been in the back rooms wheeling and dealing of Democratic politics in, in Chicago and Illinois. Something, you know, I disapprove of this. This is unseemly. I cannot tolerate this. Okay, man. So he has to he has to like pretend as though it's legit. I am outraged by this. Everybody's suddenly outraged uh, by the fact uh, that Louis Arroyo tag team. Well, I take it you're not outraged. Well, you know, no, I've seen it's hard for me. I said this yesterday. It's hard for me to be outraged over these petty crimes, these petty wheeling and dealings of these relatively insignificant legislators in Chicago and Illinois when the president of the United States is on record from having extorted uh what did he extort? A promise to from the president of Ukraine to uh, have a press conference naming Joe Biden as a target of an investigation. The, the crimes of Donald Trump so outweigh the crimes of Louis Arroyo that it's hard for me to get it worked up about Louis Arroyo, particularly when so many of the same people who are outraged about Louis Arroyo are turning their heads when it comes to Donald Trump. 
So if you're going to be outraged by corruption, if you're going to be outraged by arm twisting, if you're going to be outraged, you know, by abuse of power, it should be across the board. It shouldn't just be selective. You shouldn't just say, well, it's terrible when some minor state rep from the northwest side of Chicago does it, but it's okay when Donnie Trump does it, okay? So I have a little hard time dealing with all this, D, the obvious double standard of Republicans. That said, I think it's really, I don't know, funny that Michael Madigan, of all people, would pretend that he would be outraged by Louis Arroyo's power grab. Uh, I just, it's, I, that's, I probably have a hard time believing that he really does feel the rage about that. Uh, anyway, so uh, Michael Madigan announced that he would potentially uh, challenge uh, Eva Dinah Delgado. You know, once she was named, she was sworn in as state rep, so she's officially a state rep, but he has the power, the wherewithal to, to challenge her. And then I guess there's a whole procedure that would be followed. Uh, I'll have a field day explaining that one to people where <laughs> I think it's like a three-fifths vote in the state, state house would oust her. Uh, I don't know if he'll go that far. My suggestion to everybody is let it play out. You know, she's got to run in a primary to get the seat full time. Uh, other people have announced your good friend, Dave Feller, uh, who comes on oh, the yeah. show from time to time oh, is yeah. one of the North West side political know-it-alls has announced that he's running. He's circulating uh, petitions. We I had, know that Feller. Yeah. We had another gentleman in the studio yesterday uh, who is working on behalf of another candidate. Uh, so, you know, let the voters ultimately decide. Uh, Mike Madigan, don't don't the power play politics driving Eva uh, Dina Delgado out of office before she's really, you know, served in office, acting as though this is the worst thing you've ever seen when you've looked the other way at all the other corruption that's occurred in the state of Illinois uh, over the last 30 years. I don't know. I just think it's overkill in this place. So I'm not as outraged as all the rest of them. D. I don't know. I may have to give away. Put in my reformers card right there. I'm just... I'm just not at outraged about this. We got more people joining us on the live stream chat. Steven, what's up? Bruce, Bruce, what's happening? Uh, your thoughts on last night's debate? Weigh in. We'll probably read those on the air. So there you go, guys. Arroyo Gate. A lot going on there, right? A lot of wheeling and dealing happening right now. Pritzker is upset about it. He oh, my goodness. I got quotes from Pritzker. We're going to read them in a moment. Ben, by the way, you love wheeling and dealing. If you had to choose between one, which would it be, wheeling or dealing? Uh, I love them both. Really? It's a tie. Oh, a tie. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Duck and dud. Wheeling. Wheeling is a great town. It's a, a suburb of the northwest <laughs> uh, side of, you know, Cook All right. County. The following comes from the Chicago Sun-Times and Tina Spondella. As, as the battle rages over, who will take criminally charged former state rep Louis Arroyo's house seat? Governor J.B. Pritzker on Wednesday said that a new ethics task force should place a top priority on whether Democratic Ward Committee men are, quote, picking replacements properly. Here's the quote from JB, quote, I made it clear from the beginning that I want to make sure that the people of the district get represented properly. There's no air of corruption around the person who gets appointed and also be elected. Uh, you know, again, the selective outrage about what went down uh, it, with uh, Louis Arroyo. Where was it when uh, William Lipinski handed off his seat to Danny Lipinski? Where was the outrage over there? There was a few people, you know, outraged. Now, how about uh, did Richard Mel handing the seat over to Deb Mel to be alderwoman of the 33rd Ward? I well, mean, Pritzker wasn't around. He was a governor then. Oh, uh, <laughs> oh, I see. I, I, yeah. I didn't see the press. He had a... I, I, I didn't, I didn't, you know, I, I guess he wasn't so motivated as just yeah. citizen Pritzker oh. to speak out against. I mean, this oh. stuff's been going on forever uh, in not saying it's right. Okay. Whoa. Who? 
don't say it. Pritzker's saying. governor now, all right? Oh, and he's looking to put an end to all this political corruption. After years of neglect, <laughs> Illinois is finally getting its mojo back. All right, all right, hey, let me just remind everybody, the people of the third legislative district, they get a say in this, all right, D? They get to vote in this. There's a primary coming up. So voters in the third legislative district, you don't have to vote for Eva Dina Delgado just because she got the title. You don't have to. You can vote for Dave Feller. You can vote for Dr. D. I hear he's about to throw his hat into the I'm ring. thinking about it. Think, you're kind of almost in that district. You may actually be in that district. There's so much gerrymandering that goes on, I can't say for certain. But you're in that neck of the woods, young man. You could be in that district. Working on my campaign slogan. Dennis, just another white guy looking to get into <laughs> Illinois politics. How about that? That'll take you far. Pretty good? Yeah. Pretty good? The, I would just say the doctor. <laughs> okay, moving on. Oh, hey, what do you know? Someone else has a problem with Chicago Mayor Lori Lightfoot. Oh, just wait. Let's add that to the list. So she's worked out her contract issues with the teachers. She's got Uber breathing down her neck on that congestion fee she's looking to add. And what the hell? Let's throw one more log on the fire. United Working <laughs> Families. Ah, I'm a tie. The following comes from the Chicago Sun-Times and Fran the Woman Spielman. Chicago aldermen were urged Wednesday to vote against Mayor Lori Lightfoot's $11.65 billion budget because it breaks her campaign promise to reopen shuttered mental health clinics and tax wealthy corporations and nonprofits to pay for it. Lightfoot called the strident opposition an extension of both the 2019 mayoral campaign and the 11 day teacher strike, as well as a prelude to her 2023 re election campaign. Wow. United Working Families, which is marshalling opposition to her 2020 budget, is Lightfoot said closely aligned with the Chicago Teachers Union. Mm-hmm. All right, now come a lot of quotes. First up, it's Emma Tai, Executive Director of United Working Families. Here's the quote from Emma Tai. Quote, these are the wrong choices, and now it's time for the city council to make the right choices and vote no on a budget that is bad for working people and black and brown Chicagoans. Here's the quote from Lightfoot. Quote, this is what they've been saying from the moment of my inauguration. I would expect that they will have a continual drumbeat of complaints throughout my term until they support and announce a candidate in opposition to me in the next election. All right, there's a couple issues here, uh, and this is very similar to the fight with the teachers. So there's the political issue. Let's put that to the side. And then there's the issue of mental health. Uh, Mayor Rahm closed six mental health clinics in some of the poorest high-crime areas of the city uh, as part of his first budget, which approved 50 to nothing by the aldermen. It was a disgraceful moment in the city of Chicago. There had been no discussion as to what the consequences of closing those clinics would be. There was no discussion as to whether it was a good idea, uh, whether they you were going to leave uh, the most vulnerable people even more vulnerable than they already were. He just did it. Because uh, he had the power and the authority to do it, uh, and it generated a huge response or a loud response uh, from mental health activists uh, and lefties, few lefties that were daring to speak up in those days. And I was championing their cause once again. D, I'm like the guy in the out, out with the with, trying to be heard above the din. And uh, but it passed fifty to nothing in that first budget, largely, folks. I'm going to remind you because Mayor Rahm was also redistricting the the city boundaries of all the ward maps, and so the aldermen were really under pressure 
because Rahm plays the game hard. So on one hand, he was saying, I want your vote for that budget. Oh, by the way, we're going to be redistricting your wards in a little while. He could have redistricted them out of existence, as he did with one Robert Fioretti in the second ward. Uh, And so the aldermen went along. Some of those aldermen, Scott Scott Wagsbacker, the 32nd ward, Scotty Wagsbacker, frequent guest on this show, said it's one of their most uh, embarrassing votes. They wish he could take it back. Other aldermen have said that as well. I think John Arena said that uh, as well. So uh, this has been an issue that's been alive uh, in in Chicago politics for eight years. Lori Lightfoot, as a candidate, uh, campaigned on a promise to reopen those clinics. And then lo and behold, in her first budget, She's not reopening the clinics, and instead she's saying that she's going to spend, I think I saw the quote in the paper, $9 million or so on other uh, mental health uh, resources. So if this, in the city of Chicago, if we were going to have, uh, like I would say, a reasoned debate, I would welcome it. Like, what are the pros and the cons of moving to more to funding private company corporations to handle mental health as opposed to having a clinic that is right there on the street with city workers operating it? People can drop in on a routine, a regular basis. I tend to go for that. I say more, not less. The city needs more mental health resources across the board. Everybody's losing their freaking mind in the city of Chicago, not just poor people, but for some reason, Mayor Lightfoot is just sticking with that ROM plan, and uh, Emma Ty's group is trying to hold her uh, accountable for that. All right, and then you get to the political issue. And the reality is that the left in the city of Chicago is very dissatisfied with Lori Lightfoot. I could go down a list of five things. Uh, Miles is in the studio. I'm sure he's ready to run them down himself. At least five things that she's done that's irritated the left. And uh, Lori Lightfoot does not back away from a fight. We've seen that already with the Fraternal Order of Police. Isn't that interesting? She's having like a fight with the far right and a fart fight <laughs> with the far left. So I guess and from her point of view, that's like, well, the people in the middle must love me. Uh, but um, she's also fighting with the, the yuppies who love Uber. Uh, so she's got like a, so you got the yuppies who love Uber. I don't know. Do they call them yuppies still? They? Sure. All right. The yuppies who love Uber, the far left, the far right, they're all fighting with her. So I guess she figures she's doing the right thing. But I do think uh, the city of Chicago really should take a hard look at uh, opening up those mental health clinics. I can't believe it costs that much money in this enormous budget that we have. And uh, like I said, there's a tremendous disservice was done to people in those high crime areas when you close the clinics in the first place. All right. Now more Lightfoot United Working Family quotes. Quote, it's easy to stand on the sidelines and lob bombs. It's much more difficult to govern and particularly govern in a way that brings fairness and reality and fits uh, and fiscal prudence to a process. Lightfoot said the group is, quote, entitled to their opinion, but she plans to forge ahead with what's, quote, in the best interest of all residents and not just a certain a certain constituency and uh you get the point she won't be having a luncheon anytime soon with united working family she loves luncheons everybody yeah i I think that's pretty callous uh, rhetoric on the part of uh uh, lori lightfoot there and i say that you know i admit i like where working families is coming from Uh, i like the fact they stick up for people who are getting trounced by the system and i just feel as though to just try to reduce their concerns as though it's just all politics again this is a replay of what happened with 
to teachers. Now, there may be political activists embedded there who cannot stand Lori Lightfoot and are already planning uh, to run it, find someone to run in 2023. The rumor is that Miles Conflassen will be the person they draft Miles, to run it. Miles, <laughs> Miles, Miles. That's Come a reality. On. That's a reality. But Do to, it. But to dismiss the concerns that they're raising regarding mental health and the lack thereof in poor communities is unfair. And uh, it's so when someone someone on the left has a legitimate question about like nurses in a public school to just dismiss that out of hand. Oh, they're just running for office. They don't. You know, who can, you're dismissing the issue. Like, should we have more nurses in the schools? Should we have more social workers in the schools? And why? How much money could it make cost to open up a clinic? and staff a clinic and how much does that represent in the entire city budget uh can we afford it how much would that add to the tax roll and once again i'll point out you know i'm the i'll say it again lincoln yards two point was it one billion dollars of commitments over 23 years you know how come it somehow or other that is not a problem, a burden to the taxpayers, but opening a clinic in a poor neighborhood is. So. Yes, that's billion with a B. Thank you, I needed that. So there you are. That's what's going on in Chicago and or Illinois this afternoon. We will keep you posted on these stories as today's program rolls along. Like I said, if you're listening on the live stream, weigh in with your thoughts on last night's debate. Uh, we will be reading them throughout the program. Brianna has weighed in. She says, Mayo Pete strikes again. Uh, I have no time for Rom Jr. <laughs> Mayo Pete. That's Samina's line. Yeah. Mayo Pete. That's a good one. All right. Don't go anywhere, everybody, because coming up after this break, our good friend Miles Kampflassen of In These Times Magazine will be joining us. It's the Ben Jarofsky Show, live from the Chicago Sun-Times. The Ben Jarofsky Show is supported by Northwestern University's part-time master's program in literature and liberal studies. Students learn from dynamic and diverse faculty as they build advanced skills for critical analysis, writing, and research. Evening classes are held on Northwestern's Evanston and Chicago campuses. The spring quarter application deadline is January 15th. Learn more at sps.northwestern.edu masters. At Chicago Land Cremation Options, we are committed to listening, educating, and guiding your family through the cremation process. Whether it is time of death or when planning your wishes for the future, Chicago Land Cremation Options can accommodate you at an affordable price and with great dignity. Avoid funeral home costs with direct access to a crematory for a cremation. Chicago Land Cremation Options, just south of O'Hare, five minutes west of Chicago. It's a family-owned business and operated by my good friend, Douglas Klein. Visit it at ChicagolandCremationOptions.com. One more time, ChicagolandCremationOptions.com. Read the Chicago Reader to get up to speed on what's what in Chicago. Culture. Food. Arts and entertainment. Weekly concert listings. Weekly event listings. The environment. Travel. I can continue, but you get the point. And for all of you Chicago political junkies, raw weekly columns on real city politics from Maya Dukmasova and our very own Ben Jarofsky. The Chicago Reader. Free to the public in newsstands throughout the city and online at chicagoreader.com. Read it now and be a more informed Chicagoan. Ben, please stop talking about the Irishman. Well, we got to get down to business. <laughs> Welcome back to the Ben Jarofsky Show, live from the Chicago Sun-Times. Uh, yeah, Miles in the studio. Jeff Johnson came in early, and of course, me. Did you see the Irishman? No, he hasn't seen it, so I start talking about the Irishman. I know. I have to stop talking about the Irishman. I spent an hour yesterday. We had a, a bonus episode uh, with Sergio Mims and Adolfo Mondragon, and we talked about gangster movies, the Irishman. Uh, that's going to drop next week. 
So, uh, yes, I'm utterly obsessed, Jeff Johnson, with The Irishman. And it's going to be required viewing for everybody who comes on the show to watch The Irishman and then spend at Hope least... Hope you got four hours <laughs> to spare. It's only three and a half oh, hours. Right. Come on. It's not like you guys are doing that much anyway. <laughs> it's only three and a half hours. Come on. Uh, all right. I'm going to resist the urge to talk about the bulls with Miles. And we're going to get right down to politics. Uh, thoughts, general thoughts. Let's just start general thoughts on last night's debate. Well, first, as we mentioned before, I'd like to make an announcement here for my 2023 mayoral run. <laughs> yeah. Announcing it right here on the run, Ben Jarowski show. Uh, no, 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 no public office right now. Uh, I, uh, yeah, I mean, this was uh, partially I'm uh, still in my head because I just edited a, a story on the debate and specifically looking at. Um, kind of a follow-up from a recent conversation we had and a recent story we did at In These Times about MSNBC's kind of slanted coverage of uh, the Bernie Sanders campaign. And of course, this debate was hosted by MSNBC and the Washington Post. So um, the story kind of looked at a lot of the parallels between how uh, the network covered Sanders in August and September, and then also how he was treated in last night's debate. And if you watched it, I mean, the first 40 minutes of the debate, he spoke the uh, fourth, he was fourth from the bottom in terms of the time talking. So he was talking less than Cory Booker, less than Kamala Harris, less than A.B. Klobuchar. These are people far lower than him in the polls, right? But he's not uh, getting the questions that a lot of these other candidates are. So I think it's important to look at, you know, there was just this Emerson poll out today that shows Biden and Sanders are both tied for first place nationally. And yet in terms of speaking time and treatment of the debate, once again, we're seeing kind of the the, the media treat Bernie Sanders as more of an outlier than uh, a front runner. And I think that that was noticeable to not just Sanders supporters, but anybody looking at the debate and saying, huh, why are you know, why am I hearing A.B. Klobuchar talk so much when she's got, you know, zero percent support in the polls? She was. She's more than zero. Well, it, it, in in some states, she's, in some she's, states. Yeah, she's All right. Let's see if you can do this. I don't know if you've, you've studied this. I actually before uh, we we went on the air, I saw these numbers. So in, let's see if you can do this right here for ten trivia points. Who got the most speaking time last night? Elizabeth Warren. Wow. Did you see the list? Well, yeah. Well, I just edited a whole story on this. <laughs> you know. So you got the list. Yeah. She I, did. She did. But even but less than in the September debate, she was ten minutes higher than Joe Biden, her closest, the second closest person. In the so last debate. In, in September's debate. So this she, debate, she was still the top, but um, Buttigieg and Biden were about tied for second. Yes, very good. Very good for knowing that. Yeah. Yeah, and Buttigieg. Sanders was down at fourth. Yes, you know? he was. Just ahead, just ahead of Cory Booker. And so some people will just say, oh, why didn't he talk more? But I mean, that's not how these debates function. You know, you get cut off. You get you saw the red light going off underneath these people. Well, it, it, to a certain degree, uh, well, Bernie can't win. Okay, why doesn't he talk more? If he talks more with that bellowing Bernie voice, we heard, who did we hear the other day, Dean, when they were doing the Bernie imitations? Uh, Todd Glass, uh, Todd Glass podcast. Anyway, they were doing Bernie uh, Sanders imitations. But if Bernie bellows out, he's yelling. Yeah. Okay, so you're criticized for yelling. But one of the tactics that some of the candidates have done to get more time, Cory Booker did it, was to just demand the time. I think yeah. Cory Booker broke in uh, uh, yeah, in the debate last night, one of the great riffs I thought in the debate, we were talking about Amoro, Samina, and uh, Latissa when they come in. Uh, but Bernie didn't do that. You're right. He and because he'll get he'll get criticized no matter what, Miles. Well, then also if you if you watched, I mean, <laughs> hopefully you didn't. But if you watched the spin room, you know, before and after the debate where they oh have, my god, I love the spin room. <laughs> <laughs> I did not watch the spin uh, room. Yeah, it's for, it's for the best. Uh, you know, they they did have Michael Moron, so we'll give them that for a brief period of time, Brian Williams 
Williams brought him on. But the rest of the time, you know, you had Chris Matthews saying, Bernie needs to stop saying the system's corrupt. That's too far. You know, he needs to be careful about that language. And, you know, there uh, you had Steve Schmidt saying this is Biden's, you know, best performance by far after <laughs> what we saw was Isn't he a Republican. Steve Schmidt. Well, this is the this is the classic move where these, you know, networks put on these Republicans to advise Democrats on what they should do to win as if, you know, that like they want the Democrats. <laughs> I'm going to give you advice. I want you to follow. Do something that'll guarantee you lose. That's just that's that's what <laughs> we've come to expect now from our you know the liberal networks coverage. But you know we we saw this again and again in terms of you know how much they're willing to. Um, kind of di- downplay the role of Sanders and say that Biden had this great performance when, you know, I understand, you know, people look at a debate and can see different things based on who they, you know, who's their favorite candidate. But right. there was this moment, which we've just come to expect of, you know, another Biden gaffe. And he says, the punching you know, one, yeah. well, he says that he's supported by the uh, only uh, black senator, uh, black female senator, and Kamala Harris is standing right there. You know, she's running against him. It's like, you know, what are you doing? You're, he's just, he's face planting there. All right. So I'm going to have to give in my lefty card. I, I, you, I've, I've confessed this to you many times. I have this bizarre affinity for Joe Biden and the role he's played in American politics, even though I'm usually on the other side of it. Yeah. Uh, it's how he carries himself that generally wins me over. Although there's Biden, well, I'm, I'm going to refrain from an Irishman uh, tangent on Joe Biden. But anyway, uh, <laughs> so I, I have a greater affinity than most people to Joe Biden. But yes, he, he stumbles every time there's a debate. Uh, and it doesn't seem to hurt him because I think people just just assume he's going to stumble. But there was last night he was talking about the need uh, to take a strong uh, stand against domestic violence, and he, the the word he kept using we have to punch it, we have to punch it. So I mean, yeah. it just it just doesn't that unsavory you know approach. And I don't know who's coaching him on this either because it just doesn't seem like he's ready for. It seems like he's you know coming from a very different place than the rest of the candidates are in terms of how they're answering questions and how they're approaching you know, this landscape of um, the leftward movement and politics. Uh, oddly, he did say he wanted to like cut off funding for Saudi Arabia, which is hard for me to imagine Joe Biden going forward with. But, you know, we've seen this field kind of move further to the left from where the Democratic Party was in 2016. So, well, here, here's my thing. Why? In, I'm just going to be a little more specific of why I have this affinity for Joe Biden, other than the fact that I've been watching him in action since the uh, really since the 80s, but that's when I first became aware of him. Uh, I I maybe heard of him in the 70s, but you know he was the judiciary uh, chair that oversaw so many Supreme Court nominees uh, coming through for confirmation hearings. So that's when I became aware of him. But his performance, and this is what's sort of disappointed me, uh, Miles, his performance in the debates against uh, Sarah Palin in 2008 and against uh, Paul Ryan uh, in 2012 was very strong. And I felt that that was a key reason, particularly 2008. I appreciate him for how he handled himself in that debate against Sarah Palin. That was a pivotal moment in that campaign because the Republicans were getting a lot of momentum off the Palin uh, nomination. And he did a great job, I thought, of just sort of stopping that momentum and presenting himself as a stronger contrast to Palin, his experience, his ability to reach out to different people as opposed to just a one faction of the Republican Party, the extremist yeah. faction. So I appreciate that role. I've not seen anything resembling that debater in the, you know what I mean? He stumbles, he says, this is like Joe Biden as almost like that, that 
kind of goofy uncle at a party that's a little embarrassing. Well, it's partially, I think, that, you know, there is, it's, you know, now 2020 or about to be 2020 versus, you know, 2008. So some some time has elapsed. <laughs> None <laughs> and, of us are as good know, as we were back then. <laughs> well, Joe Biden's not getting any uh, younger or, you know, um, mentally acute. Uh, that said, I do think he's just better at debating Republicans than he is at fellow Democrats. I mean, he, as while he did win those debates, he performed very badly, if, if you remember, and when he was running for president in those primary debates. So I think that he has a much harder time making his case, especially in a field right now where you have Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders running, who are really leading the way in terms of setting um, out the contours of what this uh, policy terrain that the Democrats are running on is. They've, you know, put forward very bold policies, things like uh, Medicare for all and a Green New Deal, free college, $15 wage. None of these were Joe Biden issues. You know, he wasn't, he didn't help to steer the party in those directions. As we know, you know, as many of the things that Joe Biden has pursued throughout his career are things like, you know, pushing the Iraq war, which was a, you know, massive foreign policy disaster, working to cut Medicare and Social Security. You know, those were the kind of deals he was trying to cut when he was uh, working in the Senate and when he was vice president under Obama. So I think he's much better in that in that role of kind of the, the deal maker and I can, you know, bring the country together when you're up against Paul Ryan, who's an Ayn Rand enthusiast and Sarah Palin, who's like, you know, zealot basically, and clearly did not have much future in American public life after that run. Um, so I think that the dynamics were are much different than what he's facing right now. And I've, it's hard for me to look at that debate and say, you know, Joe Biden had a good night and the same for a number of the other candidates that are running. I do generally agree with you. I think that more diversity on the stage is a better thing. And we're getting, you know, more candidates voices in there. Um, the problem is that there's so much that goes undiscussed then. There was just, you know, a right wing like coup in Bolivia that was not brought up at all. Um, only one candidate on that stage has actually denounced it and called it a coup, and that was Bernie Sanders, but they didn't even bring that up. Um, they didn't talk about Elizabeth Warren's new uh, Medicare for All plan, which is very different from what she was touting the last time that they took the debate stage last month. I mean, that is a massive change in terms of what she wants to do policy-wise. She doesn't want to actually... Um, put forward Medi a Medicare for all plan until her third year mm -hmm. in office and start out with the public option. Now that's very different from what she said last time, which was we need Medicare for all. I'm with Bernie. You know, that was her, her words. Now she's made a clear separation from that, which to me, I mean, I think that's a dangerous gamble when we've seen every time, you know, in recent history, a president has taken control the next midterm, their party tends to lose and they're in a worse electoral position. So to think that in year three, she's going to be better positioned to pass a Medicare for all bill. It's harder for me to, you know, get my head around, but I think that's worthy of debating and talking about. And they didn't discuss that at all. So I think that there were a lot of omissions and that is part of what happens when you have 10 people on stage in two hours. Uh, and they didn't talk about schools and education at all. I don't think, uh, and they finally talked about housing policy, which is such a critical issue in this country. And yet again, they didn't ask Bernie Sanders a question about it when he just put out him and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez put out this massive, uh, housing plan, the most ambitious one in modern us. History. All right. I'm going to throw something at you. I'm curious your response and at Tulsi Gabbard and it, she's uh, controversial not just uh, in democratic politics but on this show I've had people come on this show that are very critical of her and I've had people come on this show who praise her and when I hear her her exchange with Buttigieg to me was one of the most riveting moments of the, the debate if not the most riveting although Cory Booker pound for pound coming at him on Uncle Joe on uh, on, on Reefer legalizing marijuana yeah. was pretty fascinating too but 
uh, as I said in the opening, uh, I've heard so many activists on the left, Vietnam vets, these guys are in their 70s now, but I remember them back in the day in the 80s, speaking in much the same way Tulsi Gabbard is, a very populist worldview. Like, I was a working class kid, they sent me off to this war, I, they, they lied to get me into this war. Uh, my best friends, my friends, I watched my friends get killed. I was wounded, you know, I come home, there, there's very little support for me, and, uh, you know, so I'm gonna stand up against any other war so the next generation doesn't have to go fight it. This is, this is it may be a, a small segment uh, of the population as a whole, uh, Miles, but it's, I think, a significant voice uh, in the, on the left. And to a certain degree, it's been co-opted by Trump, which is so bizarre. I don't even can't get my mind around it. What's your feeling about all this? Well, I don't think that um, Tulsi Gabbard is necessarily the best messenger for a strong populist anti-war message like you're um, laying out. I do think that she had some, made some good points last night. I think she's got you know plenty of things in her record and her alignments and you know the meetings she's taken and everything that pose a lot of questions for progressives. That said, I do think it's very important that foreign policy is discussed because this is the one area that any president is, can have the most singular impact through their office of the executive. I mean, they are the um, commander in chief. They're able to set U.S. foreign policy, as we've seen under Donald Trump, that, you know, you can do that to a very strong extent, regardless of getting your domestic agenda stuck in Congress. You know, he's moved forward uh, on foreign policy, as we saw with the, you know, he would call it a pullout of troops from Syria. Really, they just kind of rearranged where the troops were, but to allow Erdogan to, to move into that area. Um, in Rahava, this is like, you know, we're, we're seeing this more and more. And what Donald Trump has done is he's kind of um, taken the mask off and revealed his hand. He said, you know, he had this message with er or this uh, foreign uh, press conference with Erdogan where he said, we got the oil. You know, we know where we know where the oil is. The oil's taken care of. That's his, you know, it's under under the Bush era. You know, you had these neocons. You had Paul Bremer and Wolfowitz and Rumsfeld and all these people. They were kind of the new imperialists, right? They were talking about, you know, building hegemony and expanding American power. Now, Trump's not even dealing in those <laughs> kinds of, you know, highfalutin concepts. He's just saying very, you know, uh, straightforwardly, this is about oil is about economics, is about us retaining financial power and uh, controlling resources. And in the face of that, you, what you need is somebody who can talk about international solidarity, about working together and, and stopping um, wars that always most negatively impact the poorest people and the people with the least amount of power in society. And I think that that's why it was important. It was brought up last night. And I, again, to give some credit to Bernie Sanders, he's, you know, led the, um, uh, coalition to stop the Yemen war in in the, in the Senate. He you know partnered with Mike Lee of Utah and got the War Powers Act actually uh, used for the first time. And since it was started to get the U.S. to stop funding the Saudi-led war in Yemen, he also spoke about um, how we need to fight for the rights of the Palestinian people, you know, and not just give arms to Israel without any conditions. So I think that that was set a clear precedent for how Democrats should try to claim the mantle of being strong on foreign policy because this president has made very clear what he wants to do and that's just to you know grab the oil wherever mm -hmm. he can yeah well uh it seems to me it's pretty obvious that this is shaping up that the center of the democratic party is convinced <laughs> that they can win this election with the centrist candidate 
even if the left leaves the party. And I think that's pretty obvious. In other words, part of the, your, the frustration that you feel that you've expressed in the articles you wrote and uh, the articles that you cite about how Bernie is ignored, I do believe that the conventional wisdom of so many of the uh, strategists for the Democrats is that the Bernie voters, we don't need them to win this election. A good chunk of them will vote for us anyway, no matter who runs, because they can't stand Trump. And the rest of them, we don't need. We just need to peel off enough anti-Trump independents and maybe a few Republicans and get a high turnout among black voters. We will win this election. And that's they, when they talk about the Obama model, that's what they're talking about. And I, I can understand why that'd be so frustrating to a Bernie activist because <laughs> Bernie is articulating like the values of the heart and soul of what the Democratic Party is supposed to be representing. Well, the reason that's frustrating is because, you know, I, along with the rest of us, lived through an election a few years ago where the Democratic Party made that exact calculation you just laid out. And now Donald Trump is president. You know, this is not it's not as if that uh, approach hasn't been tried as, you know, we'll just count on the left to back up, you know, whoever we nominate and they'll promise some kind of tepid, weak tea you know, normalization of American politics um, will run on, you know, ideas of, you know, we're going to restore sanity to America, things like that. Um, And we'll fight against Trump, you know, we'll make this all a referendum on Trump. That's how the Democrats and Hillary Clinton's campaign ran in 2016. We experienced that and we're living with the result of it now. So it's not as if, you know, uh, it's some, you know, radical extreme idea to believe that the Democratic Party needs to take a different tack in this election and that the where the energy and the mobilization of the party's bases is where we should be uh, moving in terms of trying to get a candidate who will excite that base. That's uh, just, I think, a basic response to when you try one approach to electoral politics and it fails, you respond with a different approach. And if, you know, the Democratic Party clearly is putting their, their hands on the scales, that's why we're seeing this flood of new centrist candidates come in, Michael Bloomberg and Deval Patrick. Deval Patrick, just the other day, he was going to do an event at Morehouse College and only two people showed up, so he had to cancel the event. That's the kind of, you know, this is the, this is what's going on with the people that are being pushed in onto us as, you know, these are the real candidates we should pay attention to. When Democratic voters have made very clear they're happy with the field of candidates that they have. And yet, you know, there's a party elites that are very upset about it. I, I have to tell you, that is, I did not hear that. That thing about two people showing up, but you're absolutely correct. Democrats are complaining. There's too many people on stage, too many, and other candidates keep entering the race. And I agree with you. I, I've watched every debate, and I think pretty much every voice in the Democratic Party, to a degree, is represented on that stage. Tulsa. I, mean, I talked earlier in the show about Andrew Yang. How as the time goes on, I'm more impressed with the Andrew Yang and the ideas that he's espousing, the things he's trying to warn us about. I know I'd love to get your thoughts on Andrew Yang, see what your thoughts are on him. But yeah, the, the notion that Michael Bloomberg, Michael Bloomberg brings a lot of money and that can help. Obviously, we saw that with J.B. Pritzker. Money does help in a campaign. But we got Tom Steyer in there already. He's already a billionaire running. Billionaire. And if you want to support the party, you don't have to be running. You know, you can you can support in in other ways. I mean, I do think that having um, 
nominating a billionaire to represent your party to run against Donald Trump, who claims to be a billionaire and has set his whole agenda around protecting the interests of the billionaires, does not exactly represent a great practice of American democracy. I mean, beyond that, I don't see how you get people knocking on the doors and and, and animating the type of upsurge we, we are going to need in states like uh, Michigan and Pennsylvania and Wisconsin yeah. to defeat Donald Trump. I don't see Michael Bloomberg doing no, that. I don't see I, and Bloomberg, no. But I got to tell you this. I, I thought this is like relitigating so much of the debate and discussion we had in 2018 when J.B. Pritzker was running. And so many uh, people that I would talk to would, would, would tell me flat out, I can't support a billionaire. I can't support a billionaire. And uh, I did not vote for J.B. Pritzker in the um, primary, but I voted for him, obviously, duh, Rauner in the uh, general. And as far as Illinois governors go, he's probably been the most quote unquote progressive that I've lived under. So just the fact that the guy's a billion, I, I, okay. I wanted you to hear, get your thoughts on Yang. Let's do Yang and Steyer. Okay. All right, let's start with Andrew Yang. What's your thoughts about Andrew Yang? Well, I think he does bring a different voice. I I have a different uh, take on, you know, the future of automation and AI and everything, and that I think what we need to do is not just uh, universal basic income, which is not some foreign concept either. I mean, if you live in Alaska, you're getting paid a check by the government. You are, there already are plenty of experiments in UBI, not just uh, in America, but around the country. So this is not, you know, some wild concept. And I do think that your point you made earlier about universalism is very important because that's what always is thrown out. You know, people say this about Medicare for all. They say it about free college. They're like, oh, we're going to support Donald Trump's kids. You know, we want to be subsidizing them. That's crazy. What, what about public schools? Do you think that, you know, those the, his kids shouldn't go to public schools? I mean, that's the importance of having a universal program is everybody gets it. So you can't chip away at it and means test it down to where it does doesn't even operate anymore. I mean, then we're seeing this nonstop. It's there was just a report out today, uh, the other day, by Odette Youssef at uh, WBZ about how Cook County is going to start. Um, putting forward work requirements for SNAP beneficiaries in Cook County yeah. because of the unemployment rate has changed. I mean, this is what happens when you start a, any type of entitlement, so-called entitlement program where you're providing things for people. It's just going to get chipped away and away and away until it doesn't even exist anymore. That's why things like Social Security, things like public education are universal. And I think that's critically important. So I think it's good that Andrew Yang's talking about it. Personally, I think things like a universal jobs guarantee would go a lot farther because to be honest, $1,000 a month is not going to necessarily pull somebody out of poverty if they're experiencing it. Also, it needs to be paired with other programs to provide them more um, substance in their life so that they're able to, you know, you can't just have $1,000 a month and live off of that. There needs to be a broad, not just safety net, but I think we need to provide a higher standard of living across the board. And in the richest country on earth, we should be able to do that. And the result of this automation and robotics should be more leisure time for us. You know, we are producing more and making less as a country and as a population than we did in the 70s. You know, our production our production capacity keeps increasing, and yet we're working longer hours, we're making lower wages. This is not the future we were promised, and it's not the future we should have to live with. I mean, we should be able to work a four-day week, a 32-hour week. We should be paid much higher wages. You know, we should... Uh, 
have uh, more vacation time. There should be benefits to us as people that are, you know, <laughs> producing things in the world and creating a better world. Um, and not just, it shouldn't be all about the conversation should not be all about scarcity. And I worry about that because that's often how Andrew Yang talks about it is this kind of dystopic nightmare that's coming down the, um, uh, yeah, that's, that's how in our future is yeah. like, you know, Amazon's taking over that. Yeah, that's true. But we need the, the way to combat that is to fight corporate power and demand that we have, you know, a better standard of living across the board. It's not just to raise alarm flag. So I think Andrew Yang is playing an important role, but I don't necessarily think that all of his policy solutions are the way that we need to and go. Steyer. Well, Tom Steyer, if you remember, Tom Steyer's whole thing was starting this movement to impeach, right? Yeah. That's how he got all his uh, notoriety. It was just a list building exercise, basically, for him to run for president now Smart because he move. disbanded <laughs> this whole group yeah. right before the president was actually about to get impeached. I got to give credit on that one. Yeah, it was a hey, you know, slick move. It I'd was, <laughs> it was, and it, you know, it was a billionaire, so now he's got this huge yeah. list. And the people I know, the people that worked for him, you know, on that campaign, they really wanted to impeach Trump. They were excited about it. Now that organization doesn't even exist anymore <laughs> and it's just become his campaign. That's the most cynical approach to politics I can imagine. So I don't see that as somebody who's <laughs> demonstrating leadership yeah. uh, and is going to be capable of really Valid taking point. on Donald Trump. Uh, well, it, it's probably going to get him in. The, is he in the next debate? I can't remember. I think he already he's is. In yeah. the, is Yang in the next debate as well? I'm not sure, but I bet he will be. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I bet he will be. I thought he did. I think the people that were going to have trouble are Cory Booker, although I agree. No, I thought, he's in the next debate. Oh, he made Corey it Booker already. Is? Oh. His appeal at the end, he Wasn't came it? on so. Now, there's a guy who used the debate format. I'm going to give him some love because I've been critical of him because of his charter school stance. Yeah. But I'm Which gonna, he just had another op in the New York Times yeah, defending I saw that charter thing. schools. I mean, that, that, why are you throwing good money after bad, man? Uh, anyway, uh, his performance last night. I thought that was a good ending. Yeah. yeah. Good. And the, where he counter attacked uh, Joe, Joe Biden on Reefer. I'd love to hear what Jeff Johnson has to say about this. I just thought he did a great job of utilizing the limited amount of time he had on that stage to his advantage. Yeah. Uh, you talked about a slick move by Tom Steyer. <laughs> True. I hadn't thought of that one. Yeah, it was slick. But I think a less slick and just smart politics and realizing what he had to do. I don't even know if politics is the right word. Smart media management. Mm -hmm. uh, got he, He's in the next round. I just saw that before. Yeah. So it, it worked. Well, for it him. makes sense. I think that the what's going to happen is, you know, there all these people are going to flood into the debates, but the polls, there's only so many voters, you know, and so as, as people yeah. start to shore up and get um, more set on who their candidates are, which is going to have, I mean, Iowa's uh, just a few, uh, a couple months away, basically now, um, it's going to be harder and harder for any of these other people to to break through. And the fundraising stories, you know, tell it all. I mean, Bernie Sanders just announced he reached, you know, 4 million donations. He's got over a million donors. It's the most of anybody who's ever run for president, you know, in U.S. history. Um, Elizabeth Warren has, you know, massive fundraising haul from small donors as well. And the, the third place person is Joe Biden. And Joe Biden can't, you know, get enough money because of the caps on donors. That's why we're hearing him uh, start to talk about a super PAC. And Buttigieg is next in line. Buttigieg is his support network is all the same hedge fund managers and the people that were involved in the McKinsey yeah. uh, Institute that he was involved with. And he's flooded it all into Iowa and New Hampshire. And if you look at it, he's got 0% black support. And it's hard to imagine anybody becoming the Democratic nominee uh, when that's your reputation oh, in the yeah. uh, African-American community. Yeah, we'll be watching that one. It'll be interesting to see if in the uh, next debate people go after Steyer on the point you just made. That's a very good point. I hadn't thought of it. Anyway, Miles, thank you so much for coming on. Jeff Johnson sitting here before we let you go. As we always
always do. Tell folks how they can follow your uh, the articles you write and how they get in touch with you, all that good information. Sure. So um, check out InTheseTimes.com. We just published another piece right before I came here on looking at the debate and what I let off with here about kind of the uh, how MSNBC treated Sanders and other candidates during the debate. Um, you can follow me on Twitter at, at Miles K. Lassen. Also, I don't have a website yet, but my 2023 mayoral campaign is about to <laughs> get going. So <laughs> We got to bring uh, you and Micah back uh, for another bonus, the Bernie yeah. bonus. That was a lot of fun. Yeah. Got a lot of hits, too. So, all, all right. right. All right, Miles, take care. And I, by the way, I will not be here uh, next week because of Thanksgiving. I'm just saying that. So have a happy Thanksgiving, wherever you're going to be in Chicago. For I it. am. I'm, I'm, I'm probably making the green beans. Hopefully the mashed potatoes. That is my favorite. Mashed potatoes and the stuffing. So oh, I'm hungry, man. Yeah. All right. Have a happy Thanksgiving. I'll yeah. see you the week after you that. Too, All right. Jeff Johnson on deck. We're going to bring him on when we return. Hey, everybody. What you're about to hear are the piano stylings of Jeff Manuel. Man, listen to Jeff go. Jeff Manuel has been playing piano around Chicago for years. He's played for conventions, for celebrities, played in basement bars with blues bands. He's played at prestigious social clubs, fine restaurants, and in the intimacy of private homes. Book Jeff Manuel at jeffemanuelpianist.com. Don't worry, I'll spell his name at the end of this commercial. You know what Chicago Magazine said? They said that Jeff Manuel is, quote, as comfortable with Chopin as he is with Cole Porter. He's excellent, and his performance is joyous. He offers an elegant stream of compositions and interpretations that entertains the mind, but won't hurt the ears. To hear more of Jeff Manuel's work and to book Jeff for your next event, go to jeffmanuelpianist.com. I'm going to spell it out for you, people. J-E-F-F. M as in Mary, A, N as in Nancy, U-E-L-P-I-A-N-I-S-T dot com. Take it away, Jeff Manuel. The L, LSD, the tree. The bean. There are some words that you have to be a Chicagoan to understand. Isn't that right, Ben? Yes, indeed. I'm looking at my book right now. Oops. What book are you talking about? I don't know. What book are you talking about? Well, you can brush up on your Chicago lingo with Chicagopedia. It's a brand new guide from the Chicago Sun-Times that hilariously defines the terms that any good Chicagoan should know. Ben has the Chicagopedia in his hands right now. Well, your video's not on, but... Oh. <laughs> well, if it were, you could see it. But Ben, tell us about the Chicagopedia that you're looking at. Well, I love the Chicagopedia. I don't want to tell too much about it because I'm going to quiz Jeff Johnson of some of the stuff on it. But Chica ah. my, my beloved Bright One came out with the Chicagopedia. It was uh, in my Sunday newspaper, uh, home delivered as always. And... Uh, it's uh, all all these Chicago terms, and since I'm not from Chicago, I did not do well on this thing uh, at all, except for one term. Can I talk about the one term I love talking about? Yes, it? please. Which, Which okay, one? On page 67. Does it start with a J? No, I, I saw that one too. Uh -huh. uh, I'm not going to say that because Dennis doesn't want me to swear on the show. But somehow or other, they made the TIFF. TIFF made, made it. it. TIFF. Yeah. 
a financial instrument used by local government to funnel taxpayer money to rich people under the guise of urban renewal. Got to give the Chicago Sun-Times credit, man. Well, the Chicago Sun-Times put together the Chicagopedia. Ben Jarofsky loves it, and so will you. And you can get it. It's a great holiday gift, by the way. The Chicagopedia. Uh, learn about the slang of Chicago. Uh, you can get it right now at suntimes.com forward slash CST shop to order a copy of Chicagopedia today. One more time, suntimes.com forward slash CT shop to order your copy of Chicagopedia. All right. Uh, uh, Jeff Johnson, can I give him the quiz now? Yeah. Jeff Johnson, a regular on the show and uh, our, our uh, pension expert, our pension guru. I'm going to talk casinos and pension with him. Uh, but Jeff, right. you were born and raised in Chicago, correct? Yes. Uh, proud graduate of Lane Tech High That's School, right. correct? Walt, Walt Disney Magnet, Lane Tech, and uh, City Colleges. Uh, we had another Walt Disney Magnet person in this. I uh, can't remember who it Interesting. was. What's yes. the question? All right. Anyway, this is one. I've opened this book to the. I'd seen this already. I had no idea what this is. Chads and Trixies. Oh, that's, uh, I, I did like that one because that is the one where it's the, uh, like I always say, I, I've told you, uh, West Loop, Chicago, it's a Big Ten city, right? So everybody graduates from college and then they come here for a uh, their first job. They get an apartment with two, two friends, usually in Lakeview, Wrigleyville or whatever, and it's the Chads and Trixie. Did you know that term before? before no, I just say, yeah, I always just make fun of them because I say big, I always call it big, Chicago's a big tent city. Yeah. And so everybody I meet, you know, I live in this area right by the Sun Times and everybody I meet's from Ohio, Wisconsin, Indiana. And it's, yeah, it's that group of people. And it's this migratory aspect of how they come to Chicago for a job. They get an apartment then they, uh, you know, get an apartment with friends and then they turn around and get a boyfriend. They move in with the boyfriend. Things get serious. They move to River North or River West, <laughs> and then they have one child in the two bedrooms. It's fine, but once they have two uh, children, that's when it's the do you jump out to the suburbs or not? Yes, Chad's and Trixie. Chad's and Trixie, huh. and uh, yeah, and the, the other thing about the Big Tens, uh, and I think we may say this the last time you raised this, uh, so many bars now on Saturday yeah. have adopted Big Tens. West uh, West End, right down the street on Madison, is Michigan University or uh, uh, Michigan University of Michigan University of Michigan. Yeah. Um, bar. So every Saturday morning you walk by and it's blue, blue and yellow. Yeah. And as a mm. Northwestern fan, I'm totally outnumbered in my own area. <laughs> about fact, it. If you go to Northwestern games, you're usually outnumbered. Every big yeah. Isn't Chicago crazy? Get the Chicagopedia right now at chicagosuntimes.com. Go get it now. Hour number two of your Ben Jarofsky show is moments away. But before we get into that, we need to thank the following unions for sponsoring this program. First up, it's the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, Local 9, the International Association of Machinists and Aerospace Workers, Local 126 and District Eight, the International Union of Operating Engineers, Local 150, and of course, today's Ben Jarofsky show is brought to you by the Chicago Federation of Labor. Hour number two, let's go. It is Thursday, November 21st, and live from the Chicago Sun-Times, Chicago Reader Studio on Racine Avenue, this is the Ben Jarofsky Show. this hour of the program union man and pension guru jeff johnson is back and we're talking all things last night's debate with latisa wallace and samina mustafa and now your host chicago reader columnist 
Ben Jarofsky. Jeff Johnson in the studio. You already heard him doing uh, Chicago trivia. Do you get an update for me before I give him more trivia and then take the deep dive? Uh, the trivia thing kind of overwhelmed me there. No update. All right. Very good. All right, Jeff Johnson. I am now going to... By the From way... From Southern Illinois. Yeah, he's yeah. a little overwhelmed. Uh, he is overwhelmed. Yeah, I don't know I nothing. Know. <laughs> they keep... In the promo that you do, you keep talking about the tree. I was just going to say, I have no idea what the tree is. Do you know what the tree no, is? Oh, yeah. That was it, one of the ones that didn't it, make any sense to me. I, well, it's not even in the book. No. I can't find it. So I don't know what that's all about. But uh, uh, all right. We'll oh, do. I was going to say, actually, before, sorry, my hillbilly brain is caught up with uh, life now. Uh, we want to remind everyone listening that we will not be doing any live shows next week. By yes. The way. Yeah, nope. Ben is going to beautiful Los Angeles, California. I'm going to Alton, Illinois. Right. Yeah, Which yeah. is beautiful, yeah. too. Instead, we'll be playing Benny J. Bonus interviews and best of material available for download. So to all of our live stream and YouTube uh, YouTube viewers, go download these bonuses and best ofs. I will have them available by 1 p.m. when we typically start the show. You can download them both at Chicago Sun-Times and Chicago Reader websites and wherever else you download your favorite podcasts. All right. The only thing about the tree... Mm-hmm. As the only thing I could think of is how we say tree. I'll take tree of those. Oh, yeah, that's, what it is. that's what it is. Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, it's, it's not a location. Yeah, it's no. not a location. That's okay. For some reason, it's not in the index. Hey, guys, redo this. Get the index right. Uh, all right. I'm going to give you one last one. Oh, I just opened up the okay. book. And Come on, give me my favorite one. Come on. Because I, I can tell you no, stories about it. Uh, I don't know what your favorite. I just opened a book to this page and I saw 219. Two, oh, one. that's your favorite. <laughs> I don't think it's his favorite. No, yeah, exactly. Damn. I grew up when it was 7-7. Seven, seven, or actually, I grew up when it was 3-1-2. Oh, you're talking about area code. I'm talking about yeah, area codes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. 2 one, nine, I've, yeah, No, 2 one, nine, No, it's not. does not relate to an area code. Uh, 2-1-9. Okay, this is, this is under the category of neighborhood stuff and politics. I did not know what this was. Where political careers go to die. The address refers to oh, 219 South the Dearborn. The Fed building, yeah. I've never heard that McKinley, before. You've heard that before? No, no yeah. I, I've never heard that before. Uh, my, you know, hey, we're going to the 219. Uh, yeah, I, I had not heard that. There is a term uh, that starts with a J and ends in off. Oh, yes. Right? And I've learned that that is a more of a Chicago term. Like, oh, yeah. So I've gone to like, conferences and like, you know, so I'll say something, I, 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 yeah. off, you know, whatever. And they're like, what'd you call me? And I'm like, no, he goes, a comment. It's, like, a, you know, it's yeah, a compliment. Yeah, exactly. It means you have a nice suit. Yeah. And so nobody, like, outside of Chicago, you say that, they're like, what'd you say? I'm like, nah, okay. Wow. That's it's fighting words anywhere else, all right? <laughs> yeah. I, uh, um, that's in this book. Yeah, which it, surprised it made the me. book. Made yeah, the exactly. Book. But I, it's come up a couple of times when I've been uh, talking to people. And I will now spell uh, the word. Yeah. And back in the old days on radio, Dennis would tell me, you can't even spell it. But I think I could spell this word. J-A-G-O-F-F. And uh, if you look at it. Oh, thank you. Uh, it's They call it the ultimate Chicago put town. Yeah. And, He's, uh, uh, and you say that and they're like, what'd you say? Yeah. What? Huh? What'd you call it? Yeah. Uh, anyway, <laughs> right, I'm going to put this down. All right, uh, Jeff All Johnson. Uh, it's going to be hard for me not to give you more trivia quizzes. Uh, before I take the uh, deep dive on the local stuff and really want to yeah. talk pensions with you, you're a political junkie. Uh, your thoughts on the debate? I just, yeah. You know, I, I don't see anybody really getting out heads and shoulders above everybody else. And it's coming down to the point where you have so many different factions in the own, in the same party. And, you know, I know people that some of the stuff Elizabeth Warren talks about or what Bernie Sanders talks about, they're Democrats and they disagree with it. 
And so it's that very diversive or divisive, I should say, uh, aspect of the own party to it. And nobody's really coming out ahead right now. And, you know, like you said, you and you and Miles were talking last time. It's a crowded field to begin with. And you still got more people <laughs> jumping in, you know. And so that that worries me all in all, because you end up with you have the possibility to end up with another candidate that might not be the best candidate to win, per se, like last time. And, you know, how that party, you know, do they rally around them? Or like you said, you know, last time, like, eh, I'm not going to vote for them. Screw it. You know, um, I don't like him, but I, I don't like them either. So, yeah, I, that worries me, too. Uh, the fact that the split, that yeah. division uh, from still remain that Hillary mm-hmm. Bernie division. It's still there, Jeff. And uh, it's 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 you can't paper over it, you know. No. Uh, in fact, we talk about this uh, on the show. Should the Dems in twenty twenty should they invite Bill and Hillary to the convention in Milwaukee, yes. uh, or is that just too problematic? Uh, you know, third rail, hell, uh, Barack's third rail to some people with Biden nowadays. You know, like oh, you know, you're bringing him in, and it's a third rail where it turns people off still. Well, see, that's that's where people get mad at me. I, look, I appreciate what Biden did. I'm not so quick to dismiss Joe Biden. And I also know that Joe Biden and Miles actually said this. Uh, it's a good point is he's pretty good when it comes to running against Republicans. Yeah, that was a good point. He said, yeah, yeah. he's a good he, he's good. He, his, own, his own party kind of gets lost. He gets lost because yeah. he's so confused sometimes by where the party's going. That's <laughs> when we started talking about marijuana last night. Oh, my God. Uh, Joe, don't talk yeah, about marijuana. Stop, stop, stop. stop. Uh, yeah. So, all right, uh, let's take the deep. That's been a while since it's been on the show. And you're the one who explained to everybody. Uh, now I see it in the newspapers all the time. Not giving you any credit. Not uh, that the uh, the casino in Chicago would uh, is intended, or by the law, would guarantee that the proceeds that the city gets yeah. uh, shore up pension obligations for police and fire. Correct. Yeah. Right. Uh, SB seven seven seven. Yeah, that's the state law, state law that, yeah. that dictates that. So, all right. So, as such, I have. Decided I'm going to throw away my doubts, uh, Jeff, about casinos and how they soak suckers uh, Mm. and just go with the flow. This is what we have to do. Okay, I'm going to put that to the side for the moment, although I can go on and on about that. Yeah. And just seems, though, it's like a forever elusive goal. It's like every step we take toward getting casino, it's like another step away from casino. So try to explain where we are at the moment with a casino coming to Chicago. Uh, so there was an issue with the tax structure and the, the financial structure of uh, who would get what, right? State, city, private owner, and how that would be, uh, be broken down into. And that the, the current structure wouldn't provide enough money for a private company to come in and kind of run the casino. Um, they brought up an issue where, you know, financially, well, it makes the best sense if the city owns a casino. And then, you know, how about we just split it city and uh, state and take out the middleman, which personally, I think, you know, kind of a little better. But then you look at the other deals in the state and for the other casinos, they look and go, wait, wait a minute. Why do I have to have a third party come in and manage it? Why can't I do it? And so now you have state or all around the state, different state reps, they get uh, pressure from their managers or their village managers and uh, mayors and their cities going, wait a minute, why are they getting a preferential 
uh, deal. And then throw in the fact of a lot of uh, untrustness uh, with, uh, I don't think that's a word, but whatever, um, our, our trust issues in Chicago with our government. And so things kind of came into a logjam uh, when this last veto session, and to be honest, Pritzker had uh, his agenda that he wanted, consolidation, and you know there was a couple items that he made a must uh, that this is what's going to focus on. And some of the city's issues didn't really kind of come into that. Not to say that it can't be fixed uh, come January or whatever, but you're ended up in uh, in the next uh, session and you're already have a, you're approving a budget basically. I think next Wednesday, next two or next Tuesday um, in the city. Yeah. In the city, so that revenue for right now can't be kind of uh, you know put into that. So. Um, you know, it'll happen, I think. And it's just a matter of working through some of the details. And you have some other, some of these other municipalities that are trying to, like, that would push a Chicago casino if they were given some other little things, like a racino or, you know, if there was some compromise in there. And, you know, if, and there might not be compromise at this point, but I think at the end of the day, you'll see cooler heads prevail with a casino. All right. Now, I, uh, I need to know this. Do, does it require amending the law uh, to allow Chicago to run the casino? Yes. The way the law is written yeah, now. The way the law is written has now. has a private operator. Yes. And right. so that's the law that di- dictates casinos in other venues. Yes. And so if they were going to rewrite the law to give... For Ch- Chicago. For Chicago, yeah. you're saying that uh, state reps from and mayors from districts outside of Chicago would say mm. this is unfair. I've learned in my legislative <laughs> uh, little uh, career that I've had, you never write a law for one person, right? You never write a bill for one person. You write a bill, you know, just to address issues. So when you do it just for the city of Chicago, you create more headaches than you do uh, solving a problem. Now, why did they write the bill in the first place to keep, I I know the answer to this question as soon as I ask it, but I want to hear you. Why'd they write the bill so, with such uh, restrictions, why didn't they make it more open-ended so that you could have the option of going to a private operator if you wanted to, or you could run it yourself. You mean uh, the bill for Chicago or the original when they did the first like eight? Uh, the first, the, the original bill. Yeah. Well, they just didn't trust government, obviously. So it was uh, have a private contractor come in and uh, run it. You know, you don't want the state getting involved. There was a lot of uneasiness back in the day too when they started this where, you know, because you, you, you probably remember where you had to go out on a, a boat that actually had to leave for what was it, like 45 minutes or 95 minutes or something yeah, and, ridiculous. and then come back. <laughs> And like, you know, cause you know, it, it's fine if you spend the money on the water, but if you're on land, it's a whole nother, uh, yeah, that's. Uh, and then the uh, boats moral. were docked. I mean, <laughs> yeah. just, they still are in yeah. most of these cities. Yeah. yeah. Just go stand on a boat. Yeah. Lovely East Peoria. You're still on a freaking boat. <laughs> so, uh, well, I also think I, the, where I was going, and this is typical, uh, c- c- cynical reporter is that the private interests that run casinos uh, use their yeah. influence to get the law to get their out, cut, oh, to get their cut. Yeah, they got lobbyists, of course, and they got lobby, and they, exactly, and the, and so that effectively is what's stopping Chicago right now. Uh, the mm-hmm. private interests are saying there's not enough cut. Uh, now, yeah. I'm very skeptical about that, Jeff Johnson. They're guaranteeing 28 percent of mm-hmm. the revenue, uh, and they're saying 28 percent of a, the most the best located think about it if you put a casino downtown chicago or mccormick place wherever which apparently they're not even considering i don't understand that either yeah. that would be pay dirt wouldn't it that's what you think but i think compared to some of the other deals how they get like the, the percentage and the chunk they get from the other uh, casinos mm-hmm. yeah it's not enough to uh, wet their beak for example and that yeah at 
first glance, it's like, wait, anything more than zero is better. But yeah, no, the way the story got kind of spun around and, you know, then, you know, once that story hit and then it turned around into the fact that they want, you know, like, ah, whack the uh, private casino. Now, how about city own it? Mm-hmm. And that was a whole nother fight that started out of that. Uh, and uh, so what's your thoughts about the city running it? Let's, I, I understand it would require a change of state law, but let's just think, let's think about it. Do you think the city's capable of, of how would it work? Would you hire? A, yeah, a, hire a manager just to kind of like to the day-to-day mm-hmm. stuff where, you know, um, like a, kind of like a third party, like I hate, hate to say this in this term, but like the parking meters or something like that, where it's still city <laughs> property or yeah. stuff like that. Um, I, I personally like it. I mean, I think that it's more revenue for the city. Uh, why, you know, we can do something internally instead of, uh, you know, giving out 28% of uh, profits. Um, and like, like you mentioned, it goes to the police and fire pension fund, frees up uh, money for their increased contributions coming in. Um, and, you know, to be honest, a casino in the municipal area, especially downtown central business district is going to make a killing. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been to the casino in Cleveland, downtown uh, Cleveland. They put it in a uh, old office building. And I swear to God, it's like walking around this office building where it's low ceilings, but it's still the uh, like ornate uh, construction because it was an old building. And there's people there left and right, you know, ka-ching, ka-ching, you know, <laughs> and it's right by downtown. It's right by Quicken Loans. It's right by the uh, baseball stadium. And it makes money. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, the only thing we're going to take away from is Indiana. And quite frankly, Nobody you know, cares about Indiana, well, I don't the care. state of Illinois, exactly. city of Chicago. And here's something else I don't understand. Follow me in the logic. I'm thinking this through as I speak, which is always dangerous. Right now, the way that the law works is that the private operator would get 28% and the city and the state split the 72. If you take the private operator out, there's more money for the state as well. Exactly. Yeah. So, you, so that's more money for the rest of the state, right? And it's like, you know, and I get the issue. Uh, Chicago Casino, just like Rivers, Rivers took away from the rest of the casinos. But a Chicago C- Casino is going to come in and take away from oh, the rest, right? But here's the thing. You know, there's more money for the state. Whatever we take in, we're going to share with you in Alton or, you know, whatever uh, cities, <laughs> uh, right? There's more to go around. Yeah. And I don't, and it, that cuts through me that like, it's like, well, no, Chicago's going to get something out of it. So screw them. Yeah. It's, and uh, no, because right now they're, they're dealing in the universe of keeping it within the current framework, which yeah. means uh, what they're going to do, the fight as I see it, Jeff, is that they're going to cut more money to the operator so his ex- or his or her 28% let's say it goes Gross. up to 35%. Yeah. That means someone has to take less. So who's going to take less? The state or the city? Well, the state's the one that would uh, ultimately pass the bill and if you're writing the bill, you think you're going to take a little less? <laughs> You hear that Lori Lightfoot? <laughs> I mean, I, I, you, you see the writing on the wall on that one. Yeah, so what could Pritzker do uh, in this situation? I, yeah, I don't know. I think that you'll see it come up in uh, when they go back Jan- uh, middle of January, end of January. Um, I think you'll see it come up. And um, I think that uh, the current administration's team down at Springfield, God bless them, um, I think that you'll see them put on a hard push coming up. Uh, and, you know, it's a matter of trying to, you know, bring in the Chicago land state reps, state senators, mm-hmm. and then, you know, work in some of the downstate ones where, like you said, this can improve everything for everybody in downstate as well yeah all right we will be watching this one unfold uh, because you're right Uh, this the city of chicago if if they run it right it would be the casino that everybody goes to yeah 
Uh, and uh, go downtown, it, watch a movie, go to the casino, watch a show, whatever. Well, yeah, you, yeah. If you're not broke from losing all your money at the casino, there's that. Um, <laughs> I could tell you a thing or two about that, uh, <laughs> Jeff Johnson. All right, uh, let's talk about Arroyo Gate before we get into the mayor's budget. This yeah, is, this is a story that uh, I'm mini obsessed with, and I'll, I'll explain it to f- folks who may be coming in. We talked about this earlier. Louis Arroyo, longtime state rep, northwest side of the city of Chicago, uh, got caught. Caught on tape with the feds offering a bribe to some un- unnamed state senator uh, and uh, stepped down mm-hmm. from his position. Uh, he's got a lot of things he's got to deal with. Jeff Johnson, uh, he's got like a criminal defense. Uh, what he didn't step down from was his position as committeeman of the 36th Ward, mm-hmm. Democratic committeeman, and under the rules that dictate vacancies, state legislative vacancies, the way they're filled is that the committeeman from the wards that uh, are in that district to get convene, get together and determine who it, the replacement is. And it's a weighted vote, too, by the last election about how many people voted. Um, uh, so each committeeman gets a weighted vote based upon the last participation. Right. The more people voted, uh, yeah. the more votes you get. Uh, <laughs> uh, boy, I tell you what, Chicago politics is a trip, Jeff Johnson. Louis Arroyo was not there, uh, but he gave his proxy. proxy. <laughs> To our good friend, 30th Ward Alderman Ariel Robroyas, who combined his votes with Louis' votes, and uh, they named as a successor, uh, what's her name, uh, Delgado, uh, who is a uh, uh, some kind of uh, executive for People's Gas. People's Gas, right, because uh, uh, ComEd wasn't in enough trouble in the headlines, too. So, we're just so, we got people's people's gas. Yeah. so Mike Madigan's shocked and outraged that Democrats, my beloved Democratic Party of <laughs> Cook County and the state, they're outraged and shocked. Jeff Johnson, I'm going to say something that's going to kick me out of every uh, reform group. Uh, there we go. I don't think he, you you should ban Louis Arroyo from casting his vote. He's still the Democratic committeeman. Yeah. Uh, the rules of the game are that he gets to vote. You could blast it. You can rip it. The Sun-Times editorial, the Tribune editorial. You know, whoever gets that quote-unquote coveted Handoff suddenly has to also gets the burden and the mm-hmm. liability and has uh, to run again. It has to run again. It's yeah. called a democracy. Yeah. So I'm not tripping over Louis Arroyo having that. Uh, what do you think? Uh, you know, I agree with you. I, I'll be honest. I do agree with you in the fact that he's still the committee man. And, you know, until proven guilty, technically, you know, um, the thing I think that he messed up in and to be uh, blunt about it is instead of manning up and showing up and doing it himself, <laughs> he has uh, Ariel uh, carry his, uh, ba- uh, carry his water on yeah. that. Right. If you, if that's what you wanted and you're going to work up, you show up to the b- debate and you get stink eye from people. You, you get the reporters going, Oh my God, he showed up and stuff like this. Yeah, I'm here. What? Cast your uh, cast your ballot and run out the back door. Yeah, um, that's where to me it kind of looks a little shady. Nah, not shady. Just I mean, if, if that's what you wanted, show up and do it, right? Yeah. And like I said, I I agree with you as far as like, well, he was still a committeeman. Okay, you know, he gets the votes and hey, fight that. And like you said, going to the next election, state reps only have two year terms, so. The primary is in March. That's what you I mean. You have to circulate your petitions yeah, it's right coming now. coming around right now. Yeah. So you're going to be facing the, you know, hey, if you can carry that water as far as like, well, you're, hers, you're his guy. Eh, okay. 
so be it. It's not a huge advantage. Uh, I suppose no. you could argue that uh, if she is seated, she can immediately start send out letters. You know, you know fundraising. Uh, <laughs> well, I fundraising and uh, you know to, letters to the, to the neighborhood. Yeah, those letters that they newsletter. Hey, you're your, I'm your, your state, state rep. rep. <laughs> uh, I've seen her before. Okay, come on. Down. Yeah, and then and people just say, oh, I, they know the name. They vote for it. Well, yeah, it's hard to unseat an incumbent, right? That's the whole uh, old school rule of once you're in, you're in. Yeah, even if the incumbent has only been in for uh, what? Exactly. Uh, four months. Four months, months at that. Uh, all right. Yeah. Let's move over to uh, the budget itself. Yeah. Uh, let's see. I'll be will not be on the air next Tuesday, I think, is the vote, the actual vote. You're going to be out living up in L.A., oh, huh? Man, where's my sunglasses? Yeah. Uh, you're going out to my uh, family. That's where all my kids are. And uh, so I'm going, my wife and I are going out to L.A. You're going to come back with shit. a tan? and uh... Not really, man. I stay so far away from sun. I am not a sun guy, all right? You know, <laughs> slather so much. Oh, my God. Skin cancer. You don't want to remember the, the, the nose thing? Mm-hmm. You were here. Yeah. I uh, do not want any more battles with skin cancer. So I'm going to have so much lotion on me and uh you know i have the hat and the sunglasses i'll be protected but uh so we won't be here when the budget i presume it passes don't you presume the budget will pass yeah i think so yeah there's really no like hot button issues that are going to divide 26 of them off the budget so yeah all right so uh you represent a lot of city workers uh what's city workers attitude about this budget Ooh, um, this one's pretty vanilla, I'll be honest, right? There's, uh, you know, a couple minor issues. You know, teachers, uh, the teacher strike was taken up such a large bandwidth, I think, with the mayor's office. Um, This budget kind of flew under the radar. The budget hearings, there was some uh, kerfuffles every now and then with uh, some of the department heads, and they, you know, they got their hands slapped. And, you know, I always joke about uh, some with some of the department heads, like that, like budget hearing. Mm-hmm. It's about the only time that they're held out. Like they're, they're out there, right? And, you know, they're not protected by the mayor's office. So that's the one time they have to get up there and answer questions. And, um, you know, and some of the department heads are great. And some of them, you can tell, are reading off cue cards. Um, <laughs> I think that, uh, you know, the mental health clinic aspect of things uh, is kind of tripping her up a little bit. Uh, United Working Families are really kind of hammering that home. Um, other than that, I mean, it's pretty blah. You know, um, if you look at the accounting aspect of the budget, there's some questions there. Mm-hmm. Um, but like, you know, like under ROM, there's always these like one issue that you looked at and like, ooh, how are the aldermen going to feel? about that with this budget it's kind of you know um yeah how does this budget deal with the pension obligations that the city faces uh they uh the mayor's administration is keeping their word on police and fire are this year is the first year they're going to be on actuarial determined contributions explain what that means uh so a actuary person way smarter than me in numbers looks and says okay you need to pay x amount of money this year because uh you you know your liabilities are x uh your money in is y so the city needs to pay z and so this is the first year for five years or well, longer than that, but uh, police and fire on a ramp for five years, static numbers. Okay. I'm going to give you $5 more this year, $10 more next year, 15, 20, 25. At the end of that, an actuary is going to say how much I owe you. And it's ultimately to get 90% funded over X amount of years. And so this is the first year that it's a roughly $280 million jump. They're paying it. So police and fire are even with the, the, that even though that should be the casino, they're yeah. going to pay for that out of yes. there. Yeah, they're going to pay for the two. I think it's two hundred eighty million dollar jump uh, uh, for police and fire. So that you know, I've I've seen the talking point. You know, we're beginning. You know, we're on uh, fiscal sound uh, footing, and we're making our fiscally uh, required contributions. They're doing that. 
Um, they're going to make the payments. And uh, uh, Muni and Labors jump to ADC payments in 2023. So that's where the larger payments everybody keeps talking about. And well, in 2023, we're going to have to pay X amount more. That's when the other two funds jump to extra required contributions. And it's a large jump from the ramps. And that's why um, they did it this year, right? So... Um, Pension-wise, that's where we're at. Uh, for the Muni Fund, the Municipal Employees Fund, you're going to see uh, increase in payments by roughly $90 million, but that's from the water sewer tax that Rom uh, passed years ago where there's a setup where it increases slowly over time. Uh, Labor's Fund is seeing an increase in payments. Uh, that's due to the 911 tax, frees up more money in the uh, uh, budget as well. So right now, I mean, they're not altering any pension fund uh, contributions, and they're increasing the, the payments. So in other words... They're being responsible. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. With uh, pension fund payments, they're, you know, they're, they're, the bills come and due and they're starting to pay it. And as opposed to resisting it, as opposed to pursuing uh, lawsuits. Constitutional will, amendment changes. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Now, what about that? The constitutional amendment changes. Uh, there are some folks uh, in the business community on the right side of the aisle that are pushing for that. Oh, uh, you mean the Tribune? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Tribune's editorial board. Jesus, every other day it's in there. Hey, Pritzker, you're doing it for the fair tax. What about Constitutional Amendment for pensions? Yeah, yeah. I was going to try to refrain from saying it. I've, I'm very critical of Chicago. I've got, I'll tell you this, Jeff, I'm really mad at the Chicago Tribune's editorial board, uh, editorial page all the time yeah. for many reasons. On the other hand, the, the Tribune uh, reporters themselves, I think, do a good job of covering this town, and they're under siege. I don't know if you oh, saw I this. Saw Some the hedge fund just hedge purchased. fund yeah, equities yeah. Uh, VC. They're going to come in and bust up the trib and sell it off for parts. Yes, and similar how they did Toys R Us. The, Toys R, and we're in the same union. Yes, uh, and so my, I, I'm really feeling for them at Thanksgiving time or Christmas time because if you take away those wretched editorials. Uh, and some of their columnists, who I won't name, <laughs> those those are really good reporters. My yeah. humble opinion, I don't know what you think about them, but good journalists no, I, working I, hard. I like a lot of the Tribune reporters, and you know, I like you know one or two members on the editorial board, actually, too, right? Yeah. You know? <laughs> They're probably hiding under the table. <laughs> but no, but I mean, what you're seeing is something that's been going on under Pharaoh. This has been going on, or Tribune has been under attack for a while, and which kind of always kind of led me back into the, when they were going through the unionizing aspect of things, and they were uh, trying to get uh, um, unionized, they were under attack uh, for like, private credit, private equity uh, companies coming in and busting them up and selling them off for parts. And the whole time, unions are bad. Like, that was kind of the message from the Tribune. It's like, wait a minute, you're about to be swallowed up here by a company that just sees nothing but profit and unions are bad. And then you see, you saw that divide where the workers kind of turned around and like, okay, you know, we're going to unionize. And like talking with some of them. Yeah, we get it. I'm like, okay, all right. I rest my case, yeah. Judge. Yeah. <laughs> and now they're in an awkward position now with how that plays out. Yeah, because they're going to, that, uh, it, I've been there. Uh, at the, we, we, Michael Farrell was Farrell, at one yeah. point was on the reader, and uh, we were negotiating contracts. Uh, I can't remember. There have been so many different bosses, and uh, it's, it was always cut, 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 cut. cut. So, and now what's uh, the reader going nonprofit? Yeah, the well, readers well, going nonprofit. Yeah, oh, we well, should we'll, uh, promote that. Walk uh, me through that. The one. readers going nonprofit. The community newspaper raised money from uh, its. I was going to say listeners because I'm thinking of listeners, but readers and listeners because you know I'm sponsored by unions, Sun Times, and Reader. Everybody's sponsoring me. 
Uh, and so that's how uh, we're going to do it. So it's a, it's not unlike what WBEZ does. You know, you raise money from your audience, and uh, it's a new venture. And I'm yeah. really hoping that it works out. Uh, so anyway, yeah, the Chicago Reader probably should bring Tracy Bame on to talk about that at length uh, a little while. All right. Uh, and finally, I'm going to ask you one last question uh, before you head out the door. Samina Mustafa has entered. We're going to shift it uh, to the debates itself. But I get your thoughts on, on some of the things we were talking about with Andrew Yang and, um, you know, the whole notion that the changes in technology are going to uh, really have a disruptive impact on labor. Uh, you know, jobs. you're seeing that and it's something that I've kind of been dealing with a little bit on the pension fund side of things with AI and how you invest. Mm -hmm. You see that, um, you know, AI is really having an impact. And I always say like up until God, 10 years ago, every modern invention, every kind of in increase in, uh, you know, in technology created more jobs, right? When they went from horses to cars, it created the auto industry. When they went from horse and buggies and trains, it created the airline industry. So all these things created other economies and it created jobs. And you're getting to the point now where AI, you're talking about having a, some guy in his basement on a computer screen driving 16 freight trucks across the country in his basement. You just put 15 truck drivers out of work with some guy with AI being able to monitor his trucks. Um, but if you look at it from AI, from like going way back, they've actually replaced jobs with artificial intelligence. Back in the day, you had doormen. Nowadays, you have that little line that you break and the door opens up. Okay, cool. Um, little things like that where AI has kind of been around longer, but it's been like single dimensional as far as like in the aspects of how it's played out. Um, Cars nowadays have more artificial intelligence on them than ever before, uh, from backing up uh, beep to the self-parking things and stuff like that. Um, and everybody talks about like, and I, Amazon is the uh, biggest uh, you know aspect to that. And so, from an investor standpoint, oh, Amazon's good, right? Uh, but if you look at like, you know, and I, I'm I jokingly say they have six people working there, and it's all these robots running around on these <laughs> tracks, right? Um, and you know, I've seen videos where there's uh, the, the the kind of the tipping point was speech-wise, they've always had these plans, uh, these uh, computer programs out there that you could talk into, and I would talk and type. I had one years ago when I was just starting college, and it was horrible, right? Um, but speech recognition programs got better. Well, the vision uh, recognition programs, only in the last six years or so, have gotten better. And like the line is human technology, like human, like uh, how much we can uh, see. And about six years ago, they surpassed human uh, sight. And so they have this, uh, this uh, device, this machine, that if you pull, uh, poured like uh, 200 pills on a uh, desk, it can sort them out by looks at the shape, color, number, everything. 10 times better than a pharmacist can and 10, uh, 100 times quicker. And so AI, it's here to stay. And it's just a matter of like what everybody tells you with these economic uh, talk, uh, uh, these speeches that I go to with these economists up there that, you know, AI, AI. I'm like, all right, well, are we at that tipping point? Because once we start losing jobs, our economy is going to like, what's our economy going to do? We've never had that before. Oh, don't worry about it. Every technology uh, advance has created a new economy. Oh, OK. All right. And so that's like the answer that they give me in public. And then afterwards, uh, come here for a quick, uh, okay, yeah. And in private, they're like, no, we truly don't know what's going to happen because you're right. It's coming to the point where it's, it's going to, that tipping point of what happens with jobs. 
And they're like, well, we don't truly know what's going to happen, but we just go to past history of like, well, it's worked out in the past. Well, it's it's uh, interesting that the only person uh, talking about this uh, in in the current national debate is a, a candidate who's on the fringe of the Democratic Party. And this is what I was talking about earlier yeah. in the show. It seems like so many of the important issues that people are confronting in this country are only discussed on the fringes yeah. of the Democratic debate. And people who get six minutes or seven minutes of time and, you know, are trying to get their message out. Uh, but uh, I, I, I have to say, I, I've said this already, I appreciate the role Andrew Yang is playing in this race uh, and the issues that he's raising, uh, even with his limited time. So, yeah. All right, Jeff Johnson, all thank right. you very much. Have a great Thanksgiving, you and too, I'll see you next month, all right? Enjoy L.A. I will get my shades out. Samina Mustafa on deck. We're going to bring her on when we return. The Ben Jarofsky Show is supported by Northwestern University's part-time master's program in literature and liberal studies. Students learn from dynamic and diverse faculty as they build advanced skills for critical analysis, writing, and research. Evening classes are held on Northwestern's Evanston and Chicago campuses. The spring quarter application deadline is January 15th. Learn more at sps.northwestern.edu slash masters. Medicare for all, which is we're going to eliminate 150 million people's health care and we're going to provide health care for people that just come over the border. That is an untenable position for the general election. I, as you know, George, I just biked around Lake Michigan. Read the Chicago Reader to get up to speed on what's what in Chicago. Culture, food, arts and entertainment, weekly concert listings, weekly event listings, the environment, travel. I can continue, but you get the point. And for all of you Chicago political junkies, raw weekly columns on real city politics from Maya Dukmasova and our very own Ben Jarofsky. The Chicago Reader, free to the public in newsstands throughout the city and online at chicagoreader.com. Read it now and be a more informed Chicagoan. Did you know that 40% of the people in Illinois opt to be cremated? Well, it's true. And Chicagoland Cremation Options honors their wishes by providing cremation services directly to the general public. Chicagoland Cremation Options provides an affordable, ethical, and easy cremation arrangement, whether in person or online. Save thousands and streamline the process by going directly to Chicagoland Cremation Options. It's a family-owned business operated by my good friend, Douglas Klein. Here's how you reach them. Chicagoland Cremation Options.com. One more time. Chicago LandCremationOptions.com. It's Chicagoland's adult entertainment playground. It's the world famous Admiral Theater, 3940 West Lawrence Avenue. The Admiral is homegrown from Chicago, and it's the most conveniently located club in all of the city. 15 minutes from the O'Hare Airport in downtown Chicago Loop. Voted Chicago's best strip club, the Admiral has showgirls galore and a variety of adult entertainment shows. The world-famous Admiral Theater. Open every day from 7 p.m. to 6 a.m. 3940 West Lawrence Avenue. For events, showtime, and other information, visit AdmiralX.com. Must be 18 years of age or older to enter. Hey, it's football season, which means that the best sports reporters in Chicago want to offer you, yes, you, our listeners, an exclusive deal on unlimited digital access to all of the stories that you love. The Sun-Times has always been your go-to source for sports, right? Right? Right. And now the Sun-Times is a proud partner of the Chicago Bears. Ben loves the Bears. What's that noise you make? Reset. Hut, hut. Yeah. 
Already said, hut, hut, guys. Don't Wait, miss- what happened 2020? Sorry about that. <laughs> what happened? I don't know. You the one, what do you mean, what happened to it? You're the one who says it. Yeah. Don't miss a game this season. Get all the big play scores and stories from the Chicago Sun-Times for a limited time only. You can lock in our lowest rate yet. Only $29.99 for a full year of all the news and sports that you need to know. $29.99 for a full year of unlimited access? It's true. And you can't do better than that. Take advantage of this exclusive deal now at suntimes.com forward slash Ben. That's suntimes.com forward slash B-E-N. Ready, set, 2020. Welcome back to the B-E-N Jarofsky Show. <laughs> Live from the Chicago Sun-Times. Uh, Samin Mustafa in the studio. Latisa Wallace on her way. She's battling traffic. Uh, God bless her for coming in for Rockford. Uh, Samina had a shorter distance, so she got here faster. She's eating a delicious-looking lunch, getting me so hungry. So before I force her to comment on the debates last night, and she has a lot to say, folks. She's already teased me a little bit about what she has to say about her favorite candidate, Mayo Pete. Before we get to that, uh, you got an update for me, young man? Absolutely, I do. And people, you know we're getting closer to election season because we have more political campaign ads to play. Yeah, yesterday we heard the latest re-election ad from Cook County State's Attorney Kim Fox. Ben, what'd you think of that ad? Oh, yeah, that ad... Well, you know, I thought you liked it. I, I did like it. I have so many issues with uh, Kim Fox uh, and what went down uh, with Smollett Gate. I'm so torn on this because I feel as though it's like pillaring her. Uh, the people who are pillaring her are the very same ones who are defending Donald John Trump. So I have a real hard time with joining that mob. And uh, so I'm just all over the map when it comes to Kim Fox. And I'm, right now, I, if push came to shove, I'd probably vote for her again. But I really don't like what she did in Smollett Gate. And my friends of the lefty persuasion are always getting mad at me. Ben this, Ben that. Oh, is that an impression of anybody in particular? <laughs> Just my friends of the lefty persuasion. Ah, but right. I'm like, you know Sounded what? a little like Mick Dumpke, but go ahead. No, that was not Mick. Mick. I actually haven't had a conversation with Mick on this subject in a long time. But what she did was so Chicago with the phone call and cutting the deal on behalf of was some, very Chicago. Yeah, and I'm like, you know, I don't go for that. And I thought it was going to be different with you. And so it's hard for me just to look the other way, like all my lefty friends want me to do. They're not even my lefty friends. They're my, I don't know what they're called, friends. But it's hard for me to do it. So when I hear her doing the campaign commercial about how she's from Cabrini Green and I, 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 I mean, I, I, it is an inspirational story, but you been the sitting state's attorney for three years now and you you know it wasn't cabrini green that was wheeling and dealing when you took the call from tina chen it was more like rahm emanuel stuff so i'm all over the map with kim uh, fox all right well see. he's all over the map on that ad but hey this next ad, you're not going to be all over the map on this <laughs> okay. one. You're going to hate it. Oh, no. <laughs> Without a doubt. All right. All right we'll We're see. getting really rural with this ad right oh, here. All right. Oh, oh. Another outside group is advertising in the 13th Congressional District and featuring pictures of U.S. Rod- uh, US Rep. Rodney Davis, the Republican out of Taylorville, Illinois. But this time, the group agrees with Davis on impeachment. American Action Network, a Washington, D.C.-based group, is running TV ads in the district thanking Davis for, quote, standing against impeachment well, and, and focusing Davis. on the issues that matter to us. Yes, it's a, it's a conservative ad. It's a conservative ad, but you know, for those who uh, followed the Ben Jarofsky show uh, before our podcasting days, our radio days, yes, before you were fired, Ben. <laughs> 
We loved to play ads. That was like our thing. We I like playing it. ads, okay? Yeah. So we're just going to, you know, go back to our roots on this one here. Okay. This ad here is, uh, well, it's probably just a bunch of hot garbage. I've never even heard it. Let's listen. This is about preventing a potentially disastrous outcome from occurring next year. Now it's crystal clear. Their partisan impeachment is a politically motivated charade. Thankfully, Congressman Rodney Davis believes the voters should be the ones deciding elections. Thank you, Rodney. He's focusing on the issues that matter, making job training more accessible, supporting our veterans, and being a strong voice for our farmers. Call Rodney Davis. Thank him for standing against impeachment and focusing on the issues that matter to us. Oh, man, don't even get me started. What? Oh, you liked it. Utter BS. Oh. Let me tell you something. I, You know, the one thing I really miss, uh, having been fired from that station that the name I can't remember, is... Uh, WCPT 820. Oh, oh yeah, you. thank yeah. you. Uh, yeah. Oh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Refresh my memory. Is that I, I had the sense when I was speaking, you, like people in uh, Republican areas might be listening. And I could just tell them flat out, that is the biggest bunch of BS that they're shoving down your throat. Donald Trump has not done anything. He's done nothing that would help anybody vaguely working class, vaguely middle class. The tax cut that went to the wealthiest people have forced you to pay more because someone's got to pay the bills. And they're just like, just op open up your mouth and swallow this BS and be stupid. Just like someone in the city of Chicago for years and years. Mayors, open your mouth, shovel this stuff in, you're stupid. And they're just treating you like you're stupid. And that music in the background, that wretched, the little driving violins, Rodney Davis <laughs> stood up to those mean Democrats. So you don't like it? No, I don't like it. I'm telling you out there, any listeners, and I hope there's some in the 13th Congressional, you fall for that. You're as dumb as the worst Chicago voter who just keeps mindlessly voting for whatever alderman or mayor keeps jacking up their taxes. There you go, D. Hey, did you just say, say that. Did you say something about Donald Trump? No collusion. <laughs> All right. Oh, and anyway, hey, what a dumb commercial. And another thing. Uh, also, if you want to send us a question, you should. BennyJShow at gmail.com. Benny j show the letter j show at gmail.com because if we get any uh messages at all we're going to be doing a q a show as a bonus ben i went online to look at the, our emails to see how many we got 400 zero oh, okay <laughs> no one has sent us anything well you know uh it, it that was the other thing uh it, when when i had the old show Every now and then, some a right winger would call in. Remember that was the right wingers, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. and uh, then they got nervous because hey, Monroe. Hey, would Mitch. Like, yeah, <laughs> Monroe made mincemeat of them. I'm scared, and they're calling back again. But uh, so, if you want to send us a question, we would love to answer that question. If you have any question at all, it could be anything. Doesn't matter. Benny J Show. B e n n y J show at gmail.com send us an email and uh you know we'll do a little q a show but i mean if we get none i guess we won't do the show but it'd be great if you did so no, send we could just make up the questions uh, oh there uh, we go uh, yeah that'll be your awesome. hair man um all right uh thank you very much d you're welcome uh, that uh, yeah that did bring back memories all right samina uh, have you fortified enough to answer these grueling yes, questions yes. uh just to remind everybody uh, samina mustafa uh ran for congress uh, in 2018 in the 5th Congressional District. And uh, she came on that aforementioned show uh, when she was running for uh, Congress against uh, Mike Quigley. Uh, and she's been a regular ever since because I think she's one of the smartest people 
out there when it comes to politics. Okay. Uh, so general thoughts on the debate last night. So I, it's interesting because you, you know, you sort of see the recaps and see who won and who I, I would say there were some interesting moments. I'm surprised that Medicare for all didn't consume the entire sort of first half as it, as it has, it sort of came and went. Mm-hmm. So that, I mean, again, I'm looking at from what are the issues I care about? And that one sort of like popped up and sort of disappeared. There were some issues that, that came up that I was glad to hear about, uh, one of which was voter suppression. It came up at least twice. Um, I'd say there were some, some strong performances. I feel like Gamla Harris had some strong moments. I know you uh, you have a little bit of a political crush on Gamla <laughs> Harris. God, <laughs> so, does he ever? No, um, I'm trying to anyway. Yeah, um, I, I thought she had some some good uh, sound bites uh, that she came away with. It was interesting to see uh, Klobuchar um, as um, I, I think you know Stephanie Scora, who um, runs the uh, Girl I Guess blog who does a running commentary of all the debates and she's uh, um, has a great um, a, a, a nickname for Klobuchar, which is the Klob. <laughs> and, and it just, it, it, she, Amy Klobuchar actually seemed to come alive a little bit in the debate and I don't agree with her on most things, but the one point where I, I was glad that she spoke up and that she stood her ground was on the issue of had I had any of the women on the stage, if they had Pete Buttigieg's experience or resume, they would not be standing there. Mm-hmm. And that to me w- was something that sort of was hit the news cycle and then went away. But I, I'm glad, and I can't even remember which of the which of the the moderators brought it up. But I thought it was an important point to bring up because it is something that it, I still am. I find it unbelievable sometimes that he is being put in the same breath as some of the other folks on the stage. Cause I just don't think he, um, I think we have a broken electoral system in terms of who gets to run and who is successful. Um, and campaign finance is something that came up again and again, but he is one of those people who gets so much, um, sort of credit for things. He frankly doesn't actually say or do. And he, as the phrase that keeps coming up with him, which is just word salad and McKinsey speak, um, he he manages to always say something without saying anything at all. He, nothing he says is truly substantive. And I, it, it to me, it just is like, it just takes up space when there are important things to talk about. And he never will say anything meaningful. And I, one thing I will say about the moderators, which I found it interesting, Rachel Meadow has now moderated two of these debates. Um, she was really good and she did this, I think the last time too, she was really clear, like you didn't answer my question. Yeah. And I appreciated that. And things went a lot faster. The other debates have been incredibly, there have been slogs cause mm. nobody's been either willing to cut people off or really ask clear, um, questions that aren't simply gotchas. Um, the last thing I'll say just in my sort of like overview is, um, the fact that Andrea Mitchell was there was a lot more focus on foreign policy, which I think is important. And I think, uh, you know, the folks who, <laughs> I thought the, the Tulsi Gabbard, uh, Pete Buttigieg exchange was, uh, I, I found it important. It was uh, entertaining, but it was also important because I, I think it also speaks to the fact that it actually kind of hurt both of them. 
right? Um, Dulce bringing it up kind of made an opening for anyone who wanted to attack her for a meeting with Assad. And in the case of um, a Pete Buttigieg, it's sort of like, yeah, you can attack everyone for judgment, but you haven't had to make those calls. <laughs> you haven't done anything anywhere near this level. You haven't even won a statewide race. So like, let's be clear, like, but for some reason, I think some of the assessments have always sort of favored Mayor Pete or Mayo Pete, which I found out later. Um, one person who invented it was Kelly Hayes, who's a, a writer here in Chicago. Uh, so that's where okay. I, one of, the, one, one of the things uh, that came up on him. But again, he, I don't think either one came out really great. And for somebody like, I think it was on NPR or something, uh, one of those other stations that says something, oh, he sounded much more presidential. I'm like, no, no, actually he didn't. Again, I think it's sort of like, Everyone can look at this and come away with the um, candidate that they like or favor and see that that they did something well. Mm -hmm. This was one of those debates where I think everybody had a moment that they did something well. All right. Uh, There's so many things I could follow up with. Uh, Mayor Pete. uh, I'm going to hold off on Mayor Pete for a while. Uh, Wait till Latisse's here. Get her thoughts on Mayor Pete. Let's talk Tulsi. You and I have had a conversation about Tulsi Gabbard uh, several times. Ramana Hussein, who's a regular on this show every Friday, uh, has discussed uh, Tulsi Gabbard with me as well. Your perspective is different uh, about Tulsi, and uh, it's something that you don't hear discussed in any discussion when it comes to Tulsi. Uh, And I appreciate your perspective you've had. It's made me rethink her to a certain degree because I welcome her participation in these debates, the voice that she articulates is one that I, I've said this before on the uh, Samina today, is one that I've been hearing for a long time when it comes to anti-war debate in this country, particularly from veterans, going back to the 80s, the initial uh, Vietnam uh, veterans against the war. Many of those soldiers who came back to this country using the experience uh, that they they had been through in Vietnam, had turned against the American foreign policy establishment. And when I hear her, I hear echoes of that. And so it's like, I respond to that, but it's a little deeper with her. So why don't you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, to put it very briefly, she, if you look at the surface, what she's saying is not wrong. There is a, a blob, it's actually, That's a common phrase that's used in D.C. to describe the mix of think tanks, uh, defense contractors, lobbyists, people who, frankly, will profit from a war machine and have for decades. And that is something, if you look at even on the Democratic side, as I pointed out during my run, um, you know, a lot of our Democratic representatives take money from defense contractors and and take plenty of corporate PAC money and vote for military budgets, even with Trump in office. So she's not wrong on that point. Where things fall apart is where, when you sort of pick apart how she's actually shown up in the foreign policy space or where she gets her own money as a candidate and, and who she's aligned herself with. And She's aligned herself with people like Narendra Modi. Um, and I'm not even going to go down the Assad route because it's much clearer with Modi. And I had the prime minister of the India. Pri- yeah. So 
And I wish that Andrea Mitchell, who probably knows who Modi is, could have asked that question because that's actually a meaningful question. Um, he has, when he was a governor of the state of Gujarat, he was essentially responsible for a, a war crime. He wasn't even allowed in the U.S. for a time. 2,000 people were massacred, massacred, mostly Muslim. So this guy eventually becomes, uh, uh, you know, head of the country, and there are extrajudicial killings of Muslims. He, he's essentially put um, Kashmir in a state of, of martial law, which is, a, um, you know, has a large Muslim minority. I mean, these are things that are meaningful, and she has, uh, when he came to the U.S., she, uh, you know, was celebrated his his visit and if you look at who she gets money from it's folks who are democrats in the u.s but they're uh part of his party they're supporters of that his indian party which is essentially the republicans right a nationalist party in india so things like you know she voted against uh letting um syrian refugees come here i mean that's the thing is that where this is not unique to Tulsi Gabbard or even any of the other uh, folks in office. We don't have good coverage of how our electeds vote on these issues, period. It doesn't matter if it's health care. doesn't matter if it's, um, you know, just you know, keeping the government uh, open. It doesn't matter. We do not get good coverage on that. So for someone like Tulsi Gabbard, who's saying we want to be anti-war, She's actually getting a lot of support from conservatives. I heard something the other day, uh, a, an interview of a, a gentleman who's actually spoken to white nationalists and, and alt-right folks, and they really like her. That's like one of their favorite candidates. And why? Because of her anti-war stance. And I got to figure, and again, I'm not a, <laughs> I'm not a member of the alt-right. I'm not, you know, I don't understand their thinking, but I have to guess that part of their thinking is that it's a little isolationist. You know, why would you go fight the wars for these people? I, I don't, again, I don't understand their thinking, but that's what appeals to them about her, that she's anti-war. But I'd say she's anti-war on the surface. But if you are Muslim, she will bomb the hell out of you. <laughs> she has no problem killing Muslims, period. And she is, let's follow up uh, on that point you just made about the alt-right. David Duke, uh, KKK David Duke, that David Duke, right. tweeted out that she was his favorite candidate on the Democratic side. And he used her, somehow or other took what she says and turned it into an anti-Israel position. So in other words, she would stand up to Israel and the Israeli lobby. So she's my favorite. She immediately, uh, she sent out a tweet, told I don't want his uh, endorsement, but that hasn't stopped him. It's kind of bizarre why he would think that would help her. I mean, if he really does want to advance or whatever, I'm not going in the mind of David Duke. It's kind of a frightening place to be. But it, it's, I find it a little uh, scary that the voice in the Democratic Party that's willing to talk about the issues that you raise, these larger issues of of military spending or military policies right. or knee-jerk responses or uh, opposition to regime change wars, that voice that's on the stage, and it's the only voice on that stage, would be supported by David Duke. I would disagree with that statement. Which I think part? Bernie Sanders has also uh, done a lot Valid of work point. on this and uh, you know, was 
actually got really close. Rokana and Bernie Sanders, Rokana in the house um, from California, and Bernie Sanders were very close with a couple of um, other, like Chris Murphy, Mike Lee, uh, in uh, ending the support to the war in Yemen. Uh, Saudi Arabian support of the war in Yemen. So the, he is, she is not the only you're right, anti-war. You're right. I sit corrected. All right. Yeah. But going back to the other. And actually, this is an interesting point, and, and, and I didn't see Tulsi, and I don't, maybe she wasn't in this debate, but at some point during the debates, uh, Bernie said, I'm the only one on this stage. Yeah, I know Bernie. <laughs> <laughs> I'm the only one on the stage who hasn't voted for any of Trump's military budget. So I don't can't remember if she was on the stage when he said that, but um, he made that clear. Yeah. So, but... With her, it's a different message because she, there's three phrases she says with some consistency, as a soldier, regime change, and aloha. Those are the, you, <laughs> if you wanted to do a Tulsi yeah. debate bingo yeah. and you didn't have those on your board, you would be, yeah. I don't know what, you, I don't know what you'd do. She, Tulsi she will, debate bingo. That's the, a, those are absolutely yeah. phrases she says consistently. Yeah. Again, that's where you... I think it's it's unfortunate because it's unfortunate because it it's it's like um, a, a not a terrible message, but she's not herself really a great messenger for it. No, that's exactly what Miles uh, in the first segment said about Andrew Yang. We'll get to that, but all right, let's go back to the question I asked. We went on a tangent because I didn't phrase it correctly. Uh, what's this thing where David Duke endorses Tulsi Gabbard? So. This is where my cynical uh, sort of mindset comes in. Sometimes people just want to be relevant, so they say something that they think is going to get some eyeballs and get some press. David Duke is basically, you know, for all, for most of us, is is irrelevant. So who is, how is he going to, you know, get some press or get some things written about him, insert himself in the presidential race? Mm. I I don't know David Duke. (laughs) I don't know anything about him. But I'm just thinking, like, his, yes, in his mind, you're probably thinking like, does he think this is going to help her? I think it's, I don't think David Duke is somebody who's really thinking about other people. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I don't really, I don't really think of him as this great, um, you know, great sold person. I, I, my guess is he just wants to um, make himself relevant. But I, like I said, that, um, that author in the, the book, it'll, 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 it'll I remember the, the name of the book, but he was just, he was just interviewed on um, Fresh Air about this uh, research where he found that a lot of folks in the white nationalist movement favor her. So he's clearly either hearing that or he's perhaps driving some of it. What? Okay, well then let's just move, remove David Duke. Why do you think she's popular with people in the white nationalist movement? Yeah, so the, this author said it was because of her anti-war stance, which again, if it's, if it's because of any... Uh, I don't think it's a, a truly pacifist um, movement, <laughs> to be honest. I mean, if we see what happened in Charlottesville and things like that. But um, I don't know if it's simply an isolationism or a, like if that's the reason why they're anti-war. I, I don't have enough information. I just heard like a snippet of that. But it just struck me. I was like, oh. And if you look at, um, which I have, if when I, uh, this hasn't actually happened in a while, I was getting inundated with ads for Dulce Gabbard, like on social media, on things like Facebook. And I just out of curiosity, um, I looked at, oh, what are, who are, what are these folks saying? You know, are they identifying in any way? Are they sharing anything about their opinions? A couple of people said, you know, I am a Republican, but I support you. I think you're making a lot of sense. And so uh, 
that struck me. I was like, okay, so she's she is appealing to Republicans. Now I was in Iowa in, two months ago, actually two months ago today, and the only signs I saw in Des Moines of any candidate were of Tulsi Gabbard. I know, and Des Moines is sort of the progressive part of the state. So go figure. I mean, again. uh, (laughs) I don't know what to make of that. Well, (laughs) let's also remember polls, who are, are, who's, you know, getting um, contacted for a poll? It's generally folks who are uh, high propensity voters. Who are those voters? They tend to be older, et cetera. And all of us, all these sample sizes are fairly small. So when somebody says, oh, this person's number one, this person's number one, and you look at the end of the number that they've actually talked to, 500 voters? I mean, like, that's not enough. Yes, over time, you start to see a pattern. But again, it is, today is November 21st. We have, um, I can't remember how many days left (laughs) till the Iowa caucus. I'm sure there's somebody counting it down. But a lot can happen. Mm -hmm. We have Thanksgiving, we've got Christmas. And a lot can happen. And I think I even saw something like at this time um, in the um, in the primary with Clinton and Obama in 2007, um, uh, Obama was not far ahead. He was actually falling behind. And yeah. so that things, you know, things can change quite quickly. Oh, yeah. I, I, at this stage in 2007, my memory is correct. Clinton was ahead in the polls. Uh, and it was Iowa. Oh, it's this, things are so perverse and weird and different uh, in these last 12 years, uh, Samina, because Barack Obama won Iowa, follow me on this, largely because he had positioned himself as the anti-war candidate. Uh, and he picked up, I was there, I was in Iowa in 2008, and I heard the rhetoric, the lefties in Iowa were going to Obama uh, over Clinton because she had voted for the war. Now, he was not a senator, so he didn't have a vote, but he participated in one peace rally here in the city of Chicago as a state senator and was milking the hell out. <laughs> it's so bizarre because now here we are 13 years later and Republicans are sort of running against Obama's wars and foreign policy and Tulsi Gabbard is being used to distinguish uh, herself from the Obama wing of the Democratic Party by the same Republicans, the extension of the Republican Party that started the war in the first place. So really there's no meaning anymore to any of this stuff. Uh, it's just like vibrations that people send out into the atmosphere. And to that point, you know, this is the fifth Democratic debate, and I would wager that there are a lot of voters, um, perhaps Iowa's and on New Hampshire, maybe the and South Carolina, the, the the exceptions, but the vast majority of voters are either overwhelmed or just haven't tuned in tuned in yet. Yeah, um, because it's, there's a lot of movement, there's a lot of noise. You know, sitting here today, the December debate, I believe, is on the nineteenth. And I think only five or six candidates have qualified for that. Cory and, Booker just uh, qualified. So okay, I, so so a subset, yeah. right? And I think you're going to see some more folks uh, drop out mm-hmm. before then, right? So we have um, there are people. <laughs> I, I think you and I have talked about this before. I feel like, uh, and my fear is people are treating this a little bit like the Chicago election. I know it's not quite the same, but we had, you know, whatever, 14 people running, or was it 21? I can't even remember anymore. The Chicago mayoral election? Chicago mayoral election. Yeah, I think people, it was 14, don't quote me. Yeah, yeah but there was, there, was a, there was a crew of people that got 
Um, there were just a really just some of them had awesome names. I was like, <laughs> they were just like incredible characters. There was one woman who I think submitted eighty thousand signatures, and I think her name was like D Tycoon. I mean, it was just like awesome. Yeah, <laughs> I remember her. Yeah. So like, but what I'm saying is, I think what that does, unfortunately, is make people feel like they can't pick the right person and they're afraid to make the wrong decision. I actually, I remember talking to a young woman who, um, she was my Lyft driver and she said, you know, I, I'm, I worry about picking the wrong person. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes, you know, if I do vote, I just skip that office. So it's like, that's, we've, we've got it to the point where we don't have an educated folks and empowered folks to vote. Um, and we're also inundating folks with information that frankly doesn't affect them. Yeah. And so, you know, I'm glad we talked about childcare and, and glad we talked about um, college debt uh, for a little bit. But again, some of this stuff is just gonna be too much for right now. And so people are gonna wait until there's a smaller field. All right. And it's, it's closer to the date. Uh, and uh, Leticia Wallace has joined us and I appreciate her battling that traffic coming from Rockford. Big, I'm a big fan of Leticia Wallace and I appreciate her coming in. But I think, the, I think we're gonna do what you suggested. And so what we're gonna do, we're gonna end today's show and we're gonna tease you, we're gonna do, uh, we'll take a little break and we'll come back, we're gonna do a, a whole separate segment with Samina Latissa breaking down the debate. So wait, so we're gonna keep the show going, we're gonna end the show and then do, uh, record a bonus? Yes, sir. Okay, that's right. So you implied that we were coming back from break, but we're oh, not, oh, we're gonna no, we're end not. the show. Yes. And then we'll do this as a bonus. Right, exactly. That's correct. Radio school, why man. Why pay him the big money? Yeah, why we pay him the big money? <laughs> I am balling, guys. Yeah, he so is, rich. Yeah. <laughs> so we're gonna have Latisa Wallace and Samina Mustafa on. So I'm gonna end this show. I want to thank uh, all the guests, Jeff Johnson, uh, Samina, and uh, Miles uh, earlier in the show, and of course the man, the myth, the legend behind the board, the pride and joy of Alton. And as Latisa will tell you, back home in Alton, they call him White Lightning. <laughs> uh, give yourself a raise. Take it out of petty cash. See you tomorrow, everybody. Hey, and remember, you can download previous Ben Jarofsky shows and Benny J bonus interviews at both Chicago Sun-Times at Chicago Reader websites and wherever else you download your favorite podcasts. Downloaders, we live stream this program. Did you know that? It's true. Tuesdays through Fridays, 1 until 3 p.m. Central Time at both Chicago Sun-Times at Chicago Reader websites, the Chicago Sun-Times YouTube channel. Check it out sometime, huh? Find us on social media at Benny J Show, B-E-N-N-Y, The Letter J Show, on both Facebook and Twitter, The Ben Jarofsky Show on Instagram, J-O-R-A-V as in victory, S-K-Y. Send us an email, by the way. We're going to try and do a Q&A session. Probably going to record that tomorrow, so send your questions in ASAP, and make sure to join uh, this bonus special that we're going to be doing with Latisa Wallace and Samina Mustafa talking about last night's or Wednesday night's debate whenever you hear it, I guess. Take care.